Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for the AWA Los Angeles Las Vegas section, uh, section E meeting on Saturday, January 15, 2022. So first, this is our first event of the year for the year. So happy new year to everyone. Yeah, I wish you all have a wonderful, prosperous and healthy new year of 2020. Uh, yes, Madhu, we hear you. Uh, we try to invite you to the panel. You have to click enable, uh, but uh, anytime you can join us and uh, say a few words if you like. Uh, so today we have a wonderful speaker on a very exciting topic. Uh, this uh, spacesuit and moon uh, dust is very important. So before that, we have some logistics to go through. Uh, first of all, we thank our AWA headquarters for providing this exciting um, uh, Zoom platform, very expensive. Uh, really highly appreciate for their support. This event is being recorded and uh, it will be posted online and on podcasts afterwards. All the attendees will, will receive the uh, 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 email for the link to the, uh, the podcast. And thanks a lot to Dr. Kuznets for the permission. Uh, just a word, if you, you are bandwidth, uh, network bandwidth is an issue, you can use the internet Wi-Fi for the uh, video, and uh, you can use dial-in uh, for the audio. And during the event, please type your question in the Q&A box or wait till the end of the presentation. During the Q&A session, uh, you can raise hand. You are welcome to speak out, ask your question verbally, and uh, interact with the speaker. Just a few words about AWA. AWA, as you know, uh, is a, a very top uh, aerospace professional organization, uh, membership-based, a nonprofit. Uh, our president right now is Mr. Basil Hassan. Executive Director is Mr. Daniel Dan Dunbarker. Uh, our section chair is Dr. Jeffrey Purcell from Raytheon. Um, our membership uh, uh, were, you know, across uh, all, all the states in the country, plus uh, 88 countries and include 95 companies. Uh, uh, people like, uh, company like Boeing, SpaceX, or Origins, they are all our corporate members. So if you are employee in those companies, uh, uh, they will cover your membership dues. Our headquarters is in Reston, Virginia. Um, I just cut short a little bit, you know, join the professional society, you got a lot of benefits, networking, you can immediately get in touch of uh, many aerospace ex experts and a lot of airtable resources you can use. Uh, there are different level of membership, professional, students, educator, uh, which is free, corporate, associate, retiree, and uh, the new high school students, which is also free. Right now, we have a 50% off uh, for the student to professional uh, transition discount, 50% off. And uh, if you are retiree, you also enjoy great big discount and uh, you can contact customer service directly. And once you become a member, you got a lot of benefits. 
like uh, AWS Engage, Aerospace America, great discount for attending AWS conferences. And AWS also publish, also have awards, and also the um, uh, uh, student scholarship. And uh, another important aspect for AWS is the uh, advancement or membership. So you join a member a few years, you become senior member, and you can be nominated, become associate fellow. For example, Mr. Elon Musk of SpaceX and Mr. George Whiteside of Virgin Galactic, they are our associate fellow. Then you can advance yourself to fellow, like uh, our session chair, Dr. Jeff Bushell, Dr. Dan Raymer, and or, uh, Mr. Steve Izakowicz of Aerospace Corporation, and uh, Dr. Martin Bradley, many of those. And uh, then you can advance to another fellow, honorary fellow, uh, like uh, uh, Ms. Queen Shadwell, uh, Bill Gerstlemeyer, Dr. Mark Louise. And uh, uh, so, yeah, anyway, there's a couple of things and the local area, uh, Los Angeles is, as you know, is very strong in aerospace, has a long history heritage of aerospace. So we are blessed to be in this area. They will also have newsletter opportunities. So welcome to uh, submit your articles or any recommendation. So our speaker today uh, is Dr. Lawrence Kuznets. He's a former NASA senior scientist and aerospace engineer. He holds advanced degree uh, from Columbia University and the uh, University of California, Berkeley. Uh, his project at NASA was a, a filtration system for Apollo command module to prevent the return of hypothetical pathogens from the moon. During Project Apollo, he was on council and mission council control using 41 node man, a computer model of the human body and the spacesuit. He wrote to he wrote this to predict metabolic rate and the consumable use, usage of EVAs, which is still in use today. Following Apollo, he was assigned to the build team at the Kennedy Space Center, responsible for tile insulation and the final construction of Space Shuttle Columbia prior to first flight. During a decade of consulting and teaching during which he earned eight US patents in the field of extreme environment protection did a postdoc at NASA Ames and taught at UC Berkeley, MIT International Space University. He re returned to Johnson Space Center in 2001 as exper experiments manager for human research program on the shuttle and ISS. During this time, he wrote a notable white paper used by Congress to improve the HRP research process and created the bioadvisory algorithm Violet. This voice interrogated operator for life support and the exploration tracking is a smart spacesuit, uh, I'm sorry, is a smart spacesuit body system designed to augment mission control or replace it at distance beyond the reach of real-time guidance. In 2012, Dr. Kuznet left NASA to create the HyperNet Paradigm, a project-based team learning tool, and use it to form the Marsuit Project, a spacesuit and life support system for the exploration of Mars 
which is now under construction. Dr. Kuznet has written a climate change novel, a spacesuit user manual for kids 9 to 90, and the Save the Shuttle, a space shuttle autobiography. He is the author of numerous peer-reviewed journal articles, including the first to show that liquid water can be stable in the Martian environment. And the Earth-based uh, extremophile can survive in it. In the wake of COVID-19, he has come full circle, using everything he learned in his NASA career to form planetary protect. Uh, it's, it's actually pre uh, planetaryprotect.com and create the Q suit for future pandemic protection by preventing forward and backward contamination. On a lighter note, he was the only non-celebrity guest to appear on the John, Johnny Carson Tonight show to, uh, on consecutive, some consecutive nights and enjoys playing keyboard at dark and the dinky piano bars in his spare time. So that's heartily, heartily welcome uh, our distinguished speaker, Dr. Lawrence uh, Kuznets. Thank you, Ken. You're going through that whole list of stuff makes me realize I'm not a kid anymore. To Dorothy, this isn't Kansas anymore. It's, it's a, a, lot's, a lot's going on. It seems like a flash. But anyway, uh, I'm pleased to, uh, pleased to talk today to uh, AIAA. Um, there's a lot in this presentation. <clears throat> Originally, it started out uh, uh, just a discussion of uh, how you can use technology that we know of to help uh, mitigate the effects of coronavirus or similar. Uh, but then it expanded uh, uh, to cover the world of spacesuits uh, in, in general. And um, so I assume most people listening uh, are interested in spacesuits and they're somewhat familiar with what's going on today uh, with the Artemis program, the Artemis spacesuit. So, uh, we'll, we'll get right to that. So uh, <clears throat> in the first slide here, you see the topic, future spacesuits, moon and Mars, stopping a pandemic with Mars suit technology. The image is uh, one that I used in the uh, Humans to Mars Summit in 2021. Uh, and it will also be given, this, this particular talk will be given in, uh, in the Humans to Mars Summit or the Explore Mars uh, Summit in 2022 in May. Washington, and it's uh, it's guaranteed to uh, to create quite a stir as you'll as we proceed through the slide. You'll see why. But let, let's just get right into it. Um, first slide. Uh, let's start with the moon. So we are returning to the moon. That's the Artemis project, um, and we're in the process of designing, building a, a spacesuit to handle that, or an EMU, as we call it. Uh, so it's got a pretty tall uh, barrier to leap uh, because uh, we had a successful suit 53 years ago that did everything that we asked it to do then. So at a minimum, a new Artemis uh, EMU extramohicular mobility unit will have to do the same. So let's just take a look at what it was like to wear uh, the space suit of the time which had the designation Apollo A7LB, uh, which is now the current gold standard. So let, let's just, uh, this is about a two or three minute video. 
Downside, kind of like an overturned turtle trying to get up. Well, there you go. Uh, sometimes we forget just how capable the Apollo EMU was. Uh, it's a high bar, as you can see, quite a bit of uh, diverse activities. Um, uh, obviously, 
difficulties getting up uh, if you fall, but not great difficulties. Uh, you're looking at 53-year-old technology and we're having an enormous time reproducing that in today's world. So that is the, that is the challenge for the Artemis EMU. And by the way, uh, for those who aren't versed in, uh, in the language, an EMU uh, stands for Extravehicular Mobility Unit, and it represents a spacesuit, often called the PGA or Pressure Garment Assembly, the life support system that goes with it, toolkits, cameras, and miscellaneous hardware. The, the entire package is called an EMU. So for Artemis, the challenge is, can you beat what we had in 1969? Can you do it faster? In the next year, that's when the, uh, sorry, by 2025, can you do it cheaper? So these are the questions that, uh, that the world of uh, spacesuit designers is facing today. So <clears throat> the technologies available are, are forms two categories. There may be some secret one I don't know about, but either suits are gas pressurized or mechanically uh, pressurized with materials. So let's take a look at uh, a little history here. Um, of course, NASA has been in this business since 1969, actually before then. And if you go down uh, uh, counterclockwise from the top left, you see the Apollo EMU, which was, by the way, the only walking suit uh, that NASA built. Everything that followed for a shuttle and uh, ISS uh, is not a walking suit. It has no lower torso uh, mobility whatsoever. It's not designed for walking. So uh, you can see what, how the suits evolved into a space shuttle, an ISS suit. There was a hard suit developed at NASA Ames. And most recently, NASA got into in-house designing of uh, their own space suit called the Z2 uh, with rear entry and eventually uh, took on the job of designing the Artemis CMU in-house themselves. All of these suits, every one that you're looking at is, is, has the following characteristics. They're pressurized by oxygen. They use sublimation for cooling. They have hard upper torsos. They have fans, pumps, heat exchangers. They're closed loop, they're like a thermos bottle, completely closed to the environment, uh, self-contained. They have liquid cooling garments. Uh, they have multi-layer installation. It's a heavy portable life support system that goes on. And, and basically it's a thermos bottle approach. So you have to build the suit like a, like a thermos bottle because the extreme of temperature, you, you see simultaneous hot and cold uh, temperatures on the moon and in low Earth orbit, um, both for shuttle and ISS. If you go outside facing the sun, you're looking at 250 degrees above zero Fahrenheit. And the back of you facing away from the sun is a minus 250. So the only way you can handle such extreme simultaneously is to build it thermos bottle kind of uh, approach. Uh, back in 1967, another, uh, another design uh, came about uh, mechanical counterpressure where instead of using air to pressurize the suit, <clears throat> uh, Paul Webb came up with uh, a, a, a power net spandex that used multiple material layers. Um, when you breathe with multiple material layers, uh, layers uh, you have to, in order to balance the chest pressure with the um, helmet pressure, you have to have a breathing bladder that balances these two. It was successfully tested for two and three quarter hours. It was tailored to the user, but it had a lot of difficulty putting it on and off and the pressure was uneven. It caused capillary bursting, blood and fluid pooling. Uh, later on, 
our old friend David Newman improved upon this uh, rather uh, impressively with mechanical counterpressure biosuit. You see David wearing that uh, fashion shot uh, perspective of it. So the MIT biosuit also uses mechanical counterpressure, but it uses, uh, in addition to spandex, Kevlar elastic urethane foams. It has lines of non-extension to reduce the layers. Also has a breathing bladder. It was tested up to 3.6 PSI. It has to be custom tailored using a whole body laser scanner. Cooling uh, is, takes place through the layers uh, of evaporation in theory. Great difficulty donning and doffing this. It still had to use gas filled and gas pressurized gloves and boots. Uh, it was improved over Webb's design, but although it was funded by NIAC, which is an advanced innovative concept, it was never baselined by NASA for missions. Multiple testing revealed a lot of, a lot of issues, uh, which remain today. Uh, all of these suits, whether they're gas pressurized, mechanical pressurized, uh, have to deal with the holy rail of spacesuit design, which is mass, gravity, and inertia. So uh, the way to look at that is like this. Interviews with geologists, astrogeologists, explorers, backpackers, military personnel have established that the maximum permissible mass that can be carried on one's back for eight hours of daily blue collar work should not exceed 23 kilograms. So if you, if you back that up in the Mars, uh, sorry, in the lunar gravity, one six gravity, that gives you a 300 pound uh, limit for Earth, for, of Earth weight uh, Earth for, uh, on Earth to design that spacesuit. And that's, uh, that's to just get 50 pounds. 300 pounds is, um, is usually the starting point for most of the suits that we've, we've designed. Usually by the time you add everything else, you're well over that, but we'll, uh, we'll discuss that in a moment. Um, in designing a spacesuit though, mass is not the only concern uh, and you have to establish limits. So you have to decide what the primary heat transfer mode is. Are you gonna evaporate? Are you gonna sublimate? You're gonna use radiant loss to get rid of body heat. And don't forget, you're wearing a thermos bottle. Get inside of a thermos bottle and, and generate heat and uh, you will expire uh, by hyperthermia unless you figure out a way to get rid of that heat and dump it to the outside. So those are the ways you can do it, evaporation, sublimation, or radiant loss. Uh, you've also got radiation protection with uh, career limits. Do not exceed career limits. You've got contamination issues. Uh, you've got glove dexterity, a big problem in all spacesuits to date where with fingernail damage uh, and, and dexterity has always been a problem or remains a problem to this day. Uh, walking mobility in, in Artemis suits have to be at least as good as Apollo, better probably. Free breathe requirements. You don't want to have to spend 30 to 45 minutes in your vehicle before you can step outside. Like we, we had to do that in Apollo because we started in, uh, um, <clears throat> we started in a greater pressure but the pressure in the, in the spacecraft back in Apollo was only uh, five PSI. So going from five PSI to the suit pressure, which was only 3.7 PSI, you didn't have to pre-breathe very long. But that's, that's not the case for a shuttle. It's not the case for ISS. It's not the case for any suit where you're gonna take the, uh, the suit pressure, the, the habitat pressure uh, greater than, uh, than the suit pressure. So the habitat pressure uh, for Artemis is gonna be at least eight PSI. Uh, possibly more. And that means you're gonna have to pre-breathe. So the idea is to somehow get rid of that pre-breathe 
requirement, get it to be uh, low. The suit has to be able to survive uh, a micrometeorite hit. The suit needs to have real-time help uh, in case there's emergencies. Uh, has to be able to work in that environment for eight hours, a typical work day. Don't forget, we're not talking about flags and footprints as some people call it, missions like Apollo. We're talking about uh, working and living there uh, daily and establishing a base. So uh, your work day is gonna probably be more like our work day. And um, if anything goes wrong with a primary life support system, you must have a secondary life support system that can give you a minimum of 30 minutes of greater emergency. And on top of all these things, you have to have a waste management system, ventilation, remove toxicity, body temperature regulation. You have to worry about the size and power of the battery, communication, CO, CO2 removal, a lot, of, a lot of stuff has to go into designing such a suit. So no pun intended, but cramming all this technology into a 300 pound suit and doing it cheaper, faster, and better than Apollo EMU is a massive challenge. Uh, and the challenge is obvious, but uh, you've probably seen a lot of suits out there that uh, act like they can meet that challenge, but you should not be fooled. Never be fooled by a suit that looks pretty. That's the mantra that you should always pay attention to when it comes to spacesuits. So on the upper left, you're looking at the Boeing Starliner. If the Starliner goes, this is the suit that uh, astronauts will wear. This is not an EVA suit. This is not an EMU. This is an intravehicular suit for emergency depressurization inside the capsule. MIT's bio suit that you're looking at does not include a life support system at all. Now you look at the cool looking right out of the 22nd century SpaceX Dragon suits that you see them wearing again. These are not EVA suits. These are IVA suits intended only to be wear, worn inside the vehicle. And then you get to uh, the other pretty one that here you see the former administrator of NASA doing a big uh, uh, dog and pony show with, uh, with uh, NASA representatives from the Johnson Space Center showing off NASA's XEMU. And as many of you know, and as we'll get to shortly, uh, this uh, really, was a $1 billion cost overrun pipe dream that's led to all kinds of issues today that we'll discuss. So don't be fooled that by suits that look pretty. That's the message here. Okay, let's go on. Who are the players that are gonna be trying to design this next generation Artemis spacesuit? So of course you've got NASA, you've got, you've got Collins, which uh, was Hamilton, uh, standard and Hamilton Sunstrad, and you got international latex. Uh, they've been in partners for a long time. You have Boeing, SpaceX, uh, Paragon Space Exploration Systems, which recently acquired Final Frontier, uh, Oceaneering, David Clark, Raytheon, other and other uh, people getting in the, in the in the foray here. So these are the uh, players who are going to be trying to design this optimum spacesuit. So you need to stand by because NASA has released the RFP, the request for proposals. Proposals have come in. NASA is busy deciding who they're gonna to select to do this. Uh, but I'm cautioning you, those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. So now why do I say that? 
Well, um, I've been around a while. In fact, when I got involved with, uh, with NASA, the Apollo EMU contracts uh, were undergoing a lot of um, concern. And the reason was is because uh, the initial RFP that came out, the respondees uh, of the world, um, they did not take into account, seems so silly now, that when you inflate a rubber suit to three and a half PSI or greater, uh, the suit is going to make you inflate like the Michelin man, and you're going to have tremendous problems bending your joints. There was only one company that figured that out, and they won the bid, and that company was ILC International Latex. Now, why did ILC win the bid? Uh, because their main product was Playtex bras, and they knew about rubber convolutes, and they knew what would happen if you tried to move rubber and you didn't have it convoluted in order to expedite that. So uh, by the way, you can, you can learn all this uh, fascinating. If you haven't seen it, highly recommend it. It's called The Moon Machines. You can find it anywhere on DVD. Probably find it on streaming. It's like a, a five-part series on all the different major moon machines that we use during Apollo. And one of them is a spacesuit. And if you go through this, you're gonna, if, if you watch it, you're gonna see the contention that developed when NASA gave International Latex a contract for the Apollo EMU. Um, Hamilton Standard immediately uh, protested. They protested because they said ILC doesn't know anything about life support systems. We do. And NASA said, yeah, but you don't know anything about uh, uh, pressure garment assemblies and, and mobility in a pressurized spacesuit. So what happened was they forced them to join forces. It's uh, what we call a uh, um, a match made in hell or strange bedfellows, however you want to call it. This relationship has, uh, has been going on for decades. And uh, Hamilton Standard, Hamilton Sunstrand, now called Collins, together with the International Latex, have been the supplier of NASA EVA spacesuits right up to the present moment, starting from the 60s to now. That's a 50-year sole contractor has been carrying the ball for this, this entire project. Um, there's been a lot of contention, a lot of protesting, and a lot of stuff like that. So why do I say that those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it? Uh, the reason for that is uh, we're in this, in this position now of having to um, design an Artemis EMU because NASA itself took on the job of doing it in-house and could not do it. Now, now don't get me wrong, uh, that very group, uh, at the Johnson Space Center called Crew and Thermal Systems Division was where I grew up. Um, I started there, I worked there, I did everything, got to mission control there. Wonderful, wonderful things happened when I was there. I got to know so many of the players, uh, so many of the wonderful people and, and, and uh, impressive uh, technologies that came to bear. But back in those days, we were a, uh, a, a contract monitor. We let the contracts out and let the contract out for better or worse to Hamilton Standard to, and, and International Latex to build the Apollo EMU. But this time around, uh, Crew and Thermal Systems Division thought they could do this themselves. They could make this government furnished equipment. They learned a lot in the 53 years. They could harness everything that they learned to put an Artemis EMU together 
uh, without the need of a major contract. And uh, about two years ago, I had a meeting in uh, Johnson Space Center with uh, the um, uh, manager for the Hamilton Standard Collins Engineering. And I was told that they've been asked to help uh, in this project. And I thought that was rather odd because how can a contractor help NASA when this is an in-house project? And where were they gonna get the money to do that unless it came out of another contract? Well, in actuality, uh, they were, the crew and thermal systems division was asking for help because they were running into problems. And those problems, and this was two years ago. So those problems went on and accumulated until uh, what many of you are probably familiar with, the, the uh, Inspector General of the Government Accounting Office said, hey, wait a minute, uh, you guys, uh, your budget to do this in-house spacesuit is a, the numbers are thrown all over the place, either a half a billion, up, up to a billion dollars in cost overrun, and that suit would not work. So obviously that made a big splash. And uh, NASA was then forced to uh, draw in the troops and go back to the old model of letting out a contract. Uh, and so that's where we stand now. There is uh, an RFP and it came because this could not be done in-house. That just goes to show you the extent of the problems that remain today and how history has, uh, has been repeated. And unless you watch very carefully uh, to avoid it, these are the kinds of things that happen. It makes this very difficult. So uh, I'm very curious where this is gonna go. Uh, I don't know when the, the award is gonna be made, but keep your eyes and ears out for it because it's a very interesting set of affairs. Meanwhile, <clears throat> while all this is going on, what about Mars? After all, uh, we talk a lot about Mars and it's uh, the obvious uh, that, um, that the Artemis program's major goal is to go from the moon to Mars in, in an organized, uh, way the design reference mission calls, call, uh, calls for the moon to be used as a jumping off point. Okay, so um, what about it? Why even think about it right now? After all, we've got a RFP to worry about. It's a long way away, right? Uh, no, it's not a long way away. We know by now, again, history, it takes a decade to create, develop, test, and space qualify an EVA suit. NASA's announced humans to Mars target is early to mid 2030s. SpaceX's announced human to Mars target is late 2020s. On top of that, international players, China, Russia, are gearing up for target date. You look at that, those dates, and the clock has already started for designing a Mars EMU. It needs to happen now. Uh, but not many people are paying much attention to that. So questions a lot of you might have is, why can't we use an Artemis spacesuit on EMU? Why don't we just use the same spacesuit on Mars? We're doing all the development work, just use it. But if you look at a comparison summary of the environments of the moon, Mars, uh, and, and low Earth orbit, you begin to get a picture. The gravity level on Mars is 38%, on Mars it's 16%. There's an atmosphere on Mars. Uh, 10 millibars, there's no atmosphere on the moon. The atmosphere is carbon dioxide, mostly 95%. We don't have any of that on the moon. 
the temperature minus the minimum temperature at the equator on Mars is minus 73. Uh, on the moon, it's minus 247. Maximum temperature on Mars is plus 22, almost 80 degrees Fahrenheit. On the moon, it's 123 degrees Fahrenheit. All the more underlining why you have to have a thermos bottle on the moon. 44% um, of the sun's uh, um, radiant environment reaches uh, Mars, 100% reaches Earth. There's weather, uh, there's radiation danger. There's a lot of things. And when you look at these things in summary, there's a lot of differences. And so the short answer is you cannot, those differences, you cannot use an Artemis type spacesuit on Mars. <clears throat> Primarily because they're designed like a thermos bottle. They have to withstand these extreme temperature differences at the same time. Mars essentially is a cold place. Uh, it's, uh, it's cold or away from the equator. It's cold at night. It gets up to 80 degrees on the, on the equator, but in general, it's a cool environment. It's not a simultaneous hot and cold environment. So building a thermos bottle approach with all the mass involved is not going to work in 38% gravity. And of course, as I just mentioned, the radiation environment, the moon is different. The key level soil is different. Uh, a lot of the uh, hardware in the portable life support system won't work. I could go on and on and on, but here's the bottom line. <clears throat> a 300 plus pound Artemis EMU that we're in the process of designing will represent the apex of current technology. It would have to shrink by over half to even be considered a candidate for Mars. That's only half the problem. The other half is that planetary protection must be a key requirement in human Mars missions and no suit to date has even given it lip service. COVID has made it obvious, preventing forward and backward planetary contamination must be a priority. Uh, just as a little photo uh, to show you what we're dealing with, you're looking, uh, looking at the left 150 pound person and you're looking at the right 150 pound person in a 300 pound EMU. So just imagine what it's gonna take to shrink all that down to the size of a 150 pound person. You get some idea of the challenge of just taking an Artemis EMU and, and working on it to get it down to that size. It's worth repeating. Half the mass of an Artemis suit would have to be cut. All current designs are too complex and heavy and evolving a Mars spacesuit from these types of suits is like putting a square peg in a round hole that will not work. And unless significant breakthroughs occur, our astronauts on Mars might look like this. Or they might look like this, but they'll probably look mostly like this, uh, where you'll be attached by an umbilical to a rover. Uh, you won't be able to work for more than a couple of hours at a time. And uh, it underscores the fact this is not a fashion show. Uh, we have a problem, Houston, and how are we going to deal with it? Uh, the first thing um, to, to understand is just how different Mars is from the moon. Mars is a big place. It's a planet. It's the kind of place like Earth where you, would you wear a ski jacket in uh, the Caribbean? Would you wear a bikini in the Arctic? 
that's the kind of place you're looking at. So when it comes to comparing the moon and low Earth orbit, now let's just take a look at some, some visuals to get an idea of how different these places are. Uh, so let me, let me just watch this guy all the way. So, uh, in the words of Buzz Aldrin, this is a place of, of magnificent desolation. Uh, why on earth we want to go back there and spend billions, hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, or however much, to get there and establish a base there? I honestly don't know. Uh, Mike Collins and Neil Armstrong and many other people chimed in that we should not be dedicating ourselves to do this. But that's the reality of today's world. Uh, it seems to change with, with administration. President Obama made uh, Mark, uh, Mars the prime target uh, and said we should just go right there uh, after just some, some very brief uh, demonstration flights on the moon if necessary. But now we're all involved with a gateway, a base. Uh, and again, history, uh, if, if history's uh, not ignored, we will end up in a black hole of spending that will keep us on the moon for decades before, before uh, we ever get out of that black hole. Just personal opinion. Uh, many of you may have a different opinion. But let's contrast this environment to Mars. And let's look at some photos. Um, this widespread frost on Mars looks, looks like uh, you could get up there and make snowball, build a snowman out of it up at Utopia Planitia. Ice-filled craters more than 50 miles across. Uh, recent running water uh, coming down uh, the, the, the sheer walls of some of these craters. Uh, look at these gorgeous pictures, a water ice cap at the North Pole, limestone deposits, Gale Crater rapidly moving seasonal dunes at Nili Pratera. Uh, more limestone deposits poking through CO2 ice at the uh, South Pole, rocky terrain. Undulating plains, this is opportunities, footprints you can see in the background. Hills and valleys, majestic craters, rock-strewn plateaus, uh, winds and dust and dust devils. Uh, evidence of flowing liquid water that we've just seen that seems to come and go very quickly. So these are vastly, vastly different places. And again, when you go through and compare the environments, you see just how different they are right down to the uh, daily life. A day on Mars is 24 hours and 39 minutes. A day on the moon is 29 days, right? <clears throat> uh, it goes on at the soil on the moon, you can grow stuff in. We know what it's composed of. I'm sorry, on Mars. The soil on, on the moon is, uh, is much more uh, toxic and the likely cannot grow anything in. You have seasons on the moon. We have weather on, on Mars, rather. We have weather on Mars all these kind of things. 
So uh, with all this in mind, rather than try to shoehorn an Artemis EMU into a, uh, a Mars-type spacesuit, doesn't it make sense to start off with a fresh sheet of paper? And uh, th this is what confronted me back in 1991 when I decided to do the first postdoc at NASA Ames on spacesuits and life support systems for the exploration of Mars. And um, deciding early on that the right way to go was to let science and the environment drive the design, not engineering. So in the past, for Apollo, the shuttle program, ISS, hopefully not, I, not Artemis, but I fear the same thing is gonna happen with Artemis. Engineering drives the EMU and science uh, is the slave. But the way this really should work, especially on Mars is science and the environment should drive engineering and the EMU should be the slave. Well, that's, that's fancy talk. So how do you implement that? Well, uh, about a decade ago, um, while I was teaching at Berkeley, we came up with the idea of how to do that. And it was something called the Marsuit Project. Now, the idea of the Marsuit Project was to use university government and industry resources in a synergy to develop and build a spacesuit for Mars using the Martian environment. And the notion was to leverage steam resources with something called the hypernet paradigm. So let me, tell, let, me, let me tell you what the hypernet paradigm is. The easiest way to look at it is that uh, let's take a, a space suit. Let's call it a Mars suit. But this, this actually goes for any project you can think of. If you want to work on cancer, if you want to work on uh, undersea technology, if you want to work on whatever project you, you, you can think of, you break it up into its parts, its elements. So in the case of a Mars suit, you see these 12 elements here that uh, we, we broke it up into pressurization subsystem, thermal environmental control and life support materials, institute resources, science, uh, life sciences, trade studies, cost systems integration, sensors and displays, power, robotics, helmet torso and portable life support system design, mission planning. These are the main elements. So the way the hypernet paradigm works is you then combine these elements into what we call an old term, work packages. And you see in this particular case, there are six work packages where they're bunched together. Now keep in mind work packages one through six, because this is what happens next is how the, the whole uh, paradigm works. Uh, the darker red that you see are the six work packages. So what happens is you assign each work package to a talent pool. Now the talent pool is, uh, it, it consists of universities, uh, industries, NASA representation, the public, uh, anybody that wants to get into that talent pool, they, they look at these work packages and they say, yeah, I'd like to work on that. And so you, you then establish these talent teams, each one working on a particular work package. And you give them each, and you see some hypothetical, some, some, some examples of what we, we did. We had uh, um, minority partner universities, uh, HBCUs uh, with UC Berkeley, MIT, with uh, Naval Academy, University of Maryland, uh, University of Texas. So we, we assign each one of these work packages to this, these talent pools. 
and we give each one of them, or we give everybody a baseline. This is the starting point. This is what our requirements are. This is what we are trying to do. And we let them run over the course of a time period, usually a semester, it can, can be whatever arbitrary time period you want it to be. And at the end of that time period, each one of these groups comes up with a, a report or a trade study. Uh, or whatever they do. Now, keep in mind, after the very first time period, they're going to have something that's really a, an improvement over the baseline, but how much can they really do in a short period of time? So you see the, you see the uh, red line that's coming from trade studies. It goes up in a, another line. It goes to feedback. And in this particular case, it goes into the leader of the pack, which over here was a, a NASA organization, Exploration Systems, Mission Directorate. Uh, they looked at this and they fed it back to technical leads. In other words, this whole upper part of this, of this diagram is peer review. So designated experts would take a look at what was done and give it a reality check. And then in the second semester or second time period, this improved version would come back through the system and it would get another improvement. So when you look upon this, if you look upon this as a machine where each period of time, the group is being given an improved version from the prior period, you can see iterative evolving approach and products evolve and they get mature. Uh, and uh, so the way this was done, just to give you an idea, each, each uh, you know, in the, at the university level, you would have teams of maybe 10 to 15, and each team would be given a different lead like life support, pressurization, thermal control, there would be faculty leads, there would be mentors, and teams would work on this. So you, you, you basically give this a, a uh, you, you give this a, uh, a group that is taking this, analyzing it and improving it, and then feeding it back into the hopper. So uh, I have to go through that because I want you to understand that you can apply this and, and, and this has been going on 10, 12 years now. You can apply this to almost anything you think of the same idea of breaking things up, giving them to teams, evolving the teams over time, giving them peer review. And people can take this course uh, more than once. You can start out with a, as a bachelor's, you know, uh, a freshman. You can go all the way to a graduate student. You can do uh, a PhD in some of these areas, some of the students that were in this did. And on top of that, uh, you get exposed to the entire world of, 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 in this particular case, spacesuit design and there are jobs. So there's a very positive element in doing this methodology that uh, works directly with STEM or now called STEAM, uh, um, advancements in education. So just to show you some, uh, some of the advancements that took place, you see, how this concept evolved and you're looking at uh, not a working prototype but just a conceptual prototype and you see somebody over at uh, at uh, one of the museums space science museum walking out and demonstrating what the what the thing might look like visually right okay <clears throat> so after doing this for this many years what we've come to certain conclusions and the distinguishing feature of the mars suit that's been designed this way is a separate system for the helmet and torso Sounds unusual, but if you can create an open loop system instead of a closed loop system, you can get rid of pumps, heat exchangers, fans, 
all kinds of mass that is making uh, an Artemis EMU and Apollo EMU as heavy as it is, uh, because they're a thermospile, they're closed loop. So can you make an open loop system? And the answer is yes. If you separate the helmet from the torso, you can use the Mars environment to pressurize the torso. And you can use a separate oxygen system for breathing. So you have two separate breathing gases. Uh, one has an infinite source because the Mars atmosphere is infinite and it's CO2 and it's got pressure in it. You can blow it in, pressurize the suit. It can bust out the relief valve to maintain the pressure. And lo and behold, in one fell swoop, using that environment enables you to cut that mass nearly in half. And that's the beauty of doing it, but it has other benefits as well. If you get a puncture in a, in a suit that's completely pressurized by oxygen, you're gonna lose all that oxygen and you're gonna end up with 10 seconds of useful consciousness before you pass out. If you pressurize the torso with a Mars atmosphere that's separated from the helmet and you get a puncture, you can repair that puncture. You don't have 10 seconds of useful consciousness. You have much more. So in terms of emergencies, this is a much better way to go. So you've got, uh, you lose less oxygen because the oxygen is restricted to the helmet. It doesn't leak. There are many different reasons why this distinguishing feature made itself known when you start analyzing how to design a spacesuit in an environment like Mars. Uh, the main one is mass reduction. So I got, got into that already. In, instead of having a closed environmental control system, you blow in through this in-suit compressor, filtered dry air. It removes all of the heat, toxins and contaminants, and then it goes out and it's simple. There's another benefit. And this is one of the top requirements of future suits and that planetary protection. Now, if you look at this image on the upper left, you're gonna see a, uh, we'll see this a little better. Uh, you're, you're gonna see an envelope of gas that's being emitted from the backpack on Apollo 12. That's all kinds of stuff that's coming off that Earth suit contaminating Mars. Uh, a solution to that in an open loop system is you use viral filters at a compressor inlet and you lose, use more viral filters at a compressor at, at the, at the uh, relief valve outlet. So anything that comes in is filtered, anything that goes out is filtered. This particular design is very compatible with this kind of planetary protection. So uh, there's, there's a lot more to the design, I can't spend uh, all day telling you all of them, but over the years, many features have been built into the concept, concept of uh, the Mars spacesuit. Here you see toxicity protection using dense monolithic membranes that would go against the skin to make sure there's no toxic materials in the atmosphere that's interacting with the skin. Uh, mobility, um, I'll play this for just a brief second. You can see how moving the center of gravity down and making it lighter makes all the difference that work. Here you see what happens if you fall with a high center of gravity, uh, Conrad in Apollo 12, and you're gonna look at uh, Gene Cernan, oh. Apollo 17. Hey, uh, Don, and where we fall. gravity is much lower. We uh, stir up darker material. Pounds of mass. And look how slightly, walking, but it's darker. Walking like you and I, right? The same. Uh, other things that we've embodied in the conceptual design is variable pressure torso and gloves. If you have a high pressure glove, hard to work against it, uh, it leads to fingernail and other damage. So you can temporarily uh, reduce the pressure in the glove, enabling you to uh, do better uh, uh, work 
uh, dexterity. Advanced thermal control. Um, again, in your, if you're in a cold place, uh, you wear an overlayer on a Mars suit. If you're in a warm place, you peel the overlayer, kind of like ski jackets and going downhill, downhill uh, skiing. So lots of ways to take those into account. Other ways, direct blood cooling into a glove or a, 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 a boot can improve um, heat transfer. Ceramic test, uh, uh, textiles that efficiently re-emit infrared x-rays to keep you warmer. Uh, so, so using nano-ceramic fabrics convert the multi-frequency emitted body heat uh, to, to enable uh, warmth in colder environments. Lots of advanced materials. Uh, one other element that's being added to this uh, on Mars, there will be up to a 40 minute lag time uh, between uh, the time uh, you ask for help and the time you get it back. That's, uh, that's, that's how far away we are, 135 million miles. It's gonna require 20 miles each way. And um, you, uh, you might have an emergency that requires something faster than that. So the way to handle that is you make the, the suit smart. You build the kind of technology in that it can substitute for mission control in these emergencies. And um, we did this, uh, did that in 2009 back at the Johnson Space Center with the creation of Violet uh, and Legacy. Uh, Violet's a voice initiated operator for Luna's Mar Lunar Mars exploration tracking. And here you're going to see in the next uh, video, you're gonna see Chris Cassidy, uh, been to ISS uh, quite a few times, uh, commander, uh, just, um, Spoke to Chris the other day. Here you seen test testing out Violet. Inlet temperature check. Your MCBG inlet temp is 37 degrees Fahrenheit and the optimum is 56. You might consider adjusting your coolant to match. the different kinds of things you have to take into account uh, when you're 135 million miles away at points and uh, you don't have anybody in your backyard to help you. Um, so, okay, good stuff, right? Uh, but uh, so far, this is just a PowerPoint pitch. How do you make this a reality? And the answer to that is uh, it already is a reality. I want to show you uh, the first uh, prototype of a Mars suit that we have been building uh, now for the last uh, several months. Again, this is an initial prototype. It's coming along faster than we could possibly imagined, but uh, here you're gonna see a, a display of it. Today's Patrick. Yeah, let's see where my index mark is. Smith, he's built, he's jumped from blown, he's got a, it's, uh, 
um, works at uh, Portland State University. And extremely competent. Uh, of like. So right now he's pressurizing the helmet. Uh, there's a, a neck dam which enables to you, you watch the, the torso is being pressurized as you can see in place. Uh, the suit has the capability of separate gas ports, both the helmet and the suit. Uh, you see certain marks on uh, legs. Uh, those are designated where the uh, viral filters will be placed to contaminate planetary coding back to we will be stepping that up to 3 and 4 PSI. Um, uh, along quite nice. He's looking at the Okay, so uh, I just wanted to give you a snapshot of that. It's extremely exciting. It's happening very fast after spending uh, so long on PowerPoint and, and papers and, and classes to watch this suit actually be built, have the materials come together uh, and the next step of installing the filtration system uh, is, uh, is gratifying and uh, wonderful to be a part of. And I'll, I'll get into that a little more later. But um, this is all building into something that's far more important that I wanted to uh, finish up with, which is stopping a pandemic with spacesuit technology. And that's why we formed Planetary Protect, uh, which uh, is a, a uh, company dedicated to this goal. So, it helps to look at what is a pandemic because uh, COVID is, uh, is only one of, hopefully the last, but fearfully there'll be other pandemics. A pandemic's a rapidly spreading pathogen, initially of unknown origin, potentially fatal, crosses domestic and international boundaries. Its entry and exit mode is poorly understood. Its mitigation strategies are slow to develop. Don't we know that it can cross theoretically, planetary and galactic boundaries. So does NASA have any, any exposure to this? And the answer is yes. The space community has been involved in concerns like this since 1958 with COSPAR, the International Committee for Space Research. COSPAR recognized the potential for alien pathogens of unknown origin to cross planetary and galactic boundaries and their and thereby passed Article 11 of the 1967 Outer Space Treaty that all spacefaring nations must avoid harmful contamination resulting from the introduction of extraterrestrial matter, unquote. Forward, and forward contamination control was mandated for all outbound planetary missions that entailed clean room sterilization and backward contamination control was mandated for all planetary missions returning to Earth obviously from the moon and Mars. So forward contamination control has been implemented. Here you see Perseverance undergoing sterilization in clean room prior to launch. And you see all of the workers are in clean room suits. We're all familiar with this type of, of environment. 
when we send something out to Mars or into deep space, uh, wherever we send it, including the, the uh, JWST, these kind of precautions for sterilization and preventing forward contamination are taken to the best of our ability. <clears throat> Backward contamination started with Apollo. We haven't had to use it since Apollo uh, because we haven't had any people coming back. We have had samples coming back and I'm not sure how protected they were. A lot of control was done to keep these samples locked in. And in, uh, in, in our sample returns have to take that into account. But in Apollo, the thinking was if hypothetical moon bugs exist, present their, prevent their release on Earth. When? The decision was made to make that happen at post landing at sea following splashdown. And where was the point of preventing it? And it was at the command module, not at the moon. And how? It was done by controlling the chain of exposure through quarantine. So let, let me show you what that looked like. The chain of protection carried through five steps. And here you look at both the chain of protection from the space, from the time the command module was landed, picked up an aircraft carrier, and then <coughs> made its way both by land and sea to the lunar receiving laboratory in Houston, uh, where the astronauts were quarantined. And many of you, uh, uh, well, let me show you some photos of this. There were filters in the command modules, modules post-landing ventilation system that prevented a tenth of a micron particles from exiting the command module after landing. Now, there was a problem with that because you put a filter on the post-landing ventilation system, that stringent, it's going to cut down the airflow. Uh, it's kind of like a ceiling fan that blows the air out. That's going to make it hotter in there. And it wasn't hot. But uh, aside from that, the decision was made to just open the hatch anyway. So anything that was in there is going to get out as soon as you open up the hatch. And the mitigation procedure for that, as it were, was a biological isolation garment. Uh, this, uh, this stopped, theoretically, these pathogens from getting into the, uh, into the suit, in, in, in with the astronauts, but it didn't do anything for pathogens escaping into the atmosphere. And here you see once the astronauts were picked up in their, their, their uh, quarantine suits, they were placed into a specially prepared uh, uh, airstream trailer uh, called the MQF mobile quarantine vehicle. And here you see President Nixon greeting um, uh, Apollo 11, Buzz, Mike and uh, Neil. By the way, my roommate at the time, John Hirosaki's in the background, also quarantined. His job was to be the chief cook and bottle washer, preparing meals during that quarantine period uh, and attending to their needs. He had quite a job. The Lunar Receiving Lab at the Johnson Space Center maintained quarantine in Apollos 11 through 14 for up to two weeks. And here you see some photos of the quarantine. The entire crew had to be quarantined. The building was kept at a lower pressure than the rest of the environment of the Johnson Space Center or the Earth atmosphere. So in case anything leaked, it would leak in, it wouldn't leak out. Uh, they were fully prepared to get colds and whatever was outside and normal, as long as it didn't go in the other direction. And uh, in the center and bottom pictures, you see a dedication ceremony that was held at the Johnson Space Center, again, with Neil and Buzz in the lower right, commemorating the quarantine uh, efforts in the building. <clears throat> so all that aside, would it be possible to stop hypothetical pathogens from entering through a spacesuit? 
And now if you take a look at this image on the left-hand side, you can see just what a, uh, an envelope of effluent surrounds a Apollo type EMU that is sublimating and getting rid of uh, waste uh, into, the, into the lunar atmosphere. And you see all that stuff is being dumped right onto the ground with no, no uh, care or forethought. So there is back contamination, there's forward contamination. All this is going on. As near as I know, I could be wrong. I haven't seen the, uh, I haven't seen the response to the RFP. As far as I know, this is uh, not being concerned, not being uh, considered uh, for Artemis because we don't think there's any moon bugs uh, to worry about on the moon. What about Mars? Um, the Mars suit that you just looked at is being designed to limit both forward and contaminate, uh, back contamination. I've already explained how we intend to do that with viral filters at the inlet and outlet. And um, we can design that kind of technology in to the suit to stop to the best of our ability, anything getting into that suit and anything getting out. So knowing all of this, the question is, can this type of technology be migrated to stop a pandemic on Earth? And that's why we formed a planetary protect with the goal of building the Q suit, Q for quarantine, pathogen, pathogen protective suit, unparalleled defense against COVID-19 and future pandemics. So here you see how this, uh, this, 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 this process works. Uh, it goes from one step to the next step to a, you know, initial version of a quarantine suit to, to evolutionary designs. Um, and if you look at the requirements to build a Mars suit, we basically uh, duplicated those for a Q suit. That is save mass, conserve power, save oxygen, extend survival time, mitigate contamination, reduce contaminants, Simplify components, extend operation time, and reduce costs. So, what are some of the features? I'll just give you the. There's a lot here, obviously, uh, to talk about. But uh, the two main front upfront features are, are NASA type acronyms that we've called BB and FE. BB stands for barrier to entry and barrier to exit. Nothing gets in and nothing gets out. That's the purpose of the filters. FE stands for face-to-face -face exposure elimination. There are no openings in the suit, in the front of this suit whatsoever. And when you deal in a, in a, in a COVID environment, a hospital environment, a uh, contagious environment, one that uh, let's hope never happens, is far more lethal and far more contagious than COVID, you deal with it usually face-to-face. -face. You, you, you have people talking to people face-to-face, -face, treating people face-to-face. -face. You're in a crowd face-to-face. -face. This is how these kinds of pathogens are spread. So the goal here was to eliminate any openings in the face-to-face -face environment. And that's what that's what's done. Other things that needed to be considered is ease of donning and doffing. A suit like this, you have to be able to get into it Within 60 seconds, if you take a look at all the uh, personal protective equipment in hospitals that people wear uh, to protect themselves, it takes 
15, 20, 30 minutes to get all the pieces together with masks and gowns and gloves and all that stuff. It needs to be very light, lightweight, full range of motion and dexterity, has to have 210 fog-free vision. It has to have a positive pressure uh, in the suit that repels viruses or anything from getting into the suit through small tears. So the pressure is pushing out, not getting in, not allowing anything in. Uh, it needs to eliminate components like masks and visors and constricting shields. It needs to be low cost, sterilizable, reusable. It has to have a redundancy for temperature control, comfort and filtration. And in this particular case, super HEPA filters which are a tenth of a micron have been uh, selected to remove pathogens. By the way, uh, COVID uh, is 0.125.13. So the individual uh, pathogen is, is larger in size than the uh, filters that are used. Uh, you have to have rechargeable batteries, uh, ease of cha uh, changing from shift or continuity, Bluetooth plugins for audio, stethoscopes, communication, optional wastewater food management. And then the last one is suit has to be able to isolate anyone wearing it from the outside, outside world, effectively quarantining and controlling early outbreaks. So this is called rapid outbreak response. So let me ROR. Let me tell you what that, what the, how that manifests. In a future, in a future pandemic, uh, or, or even with this one, as soon as an outbreak is identified, that area will have access either by warehousing or by rapid shifting to 500 or more of these quarantine suits. Everybody within a radius of TBD would be asked to put these suits on. Once you're in these suits, they can be worn continuously. There are feeding ports that you can get in and, and, and uh, drink and eat, or you can go to a sterilizable room to do that. But essentially, you can wear these suits for the period of time it takes for symptoms to manifest. So if you get enough of these suits to where the outbreak is first identified, within 14 days, those, who man those who've come down with the, the outbreak can be separated from those who have not. And, and therefore, you can stop the outbreak rapidly. That's why it's in for rapid outbreak response. So that's the keystone of this particular design. I should also add that these suits are designed uh, to be cost-effective and lightweight um, and reusable and sterilizable and within, within the price range of anybody, not just, uh, not just medical facilities, but targeting the price of this is a price point of less than $200, which means you could hang it in your closet. Um, and it would be available in hotels, cruise ships, educational institutions, uh, besides medical uh, facilities. So it might look like it's uh, very targeted to medical facilities, but that's not uh, the target audience. So with that, uh, let me give you a little demonstration of where this stands. That keeps a second, hold on. And again, uh, Cameron Smith, our, let me take this forward a little bit. Cameron Smith, our resident spacesuit uh, assembler is gonna show you this. 
out of there in a hurry. Uh, one of the things we've done is see every component has a backup. And finally, there's Cameron. And Cameron is indispensable because he's put all this together with the ideas that we've come up with. So I'm going to now turn it over to Gene, uh, sorry, to Cameron, who's going to take you through as he gets in. All right, well, thank you, Dr. Kuznets, for uh, introducing me to this, this project of applying system en uh, systems engineering and uh, NASA spacesuit technology to a, a very modern problem right here on the surface of the Earth. Uh, we've seen the uh, uh, sort of schematic representation of the suit. Now I'm going to show you uh, how easy it is to put on, uh, run the uh, ventilators a little while, um, and then walk through some more of the design features. The first design feature, really, uh, to see is that it's easy to put on, and you can do it by yourself. This is awfully important. With a lot of personal protective equipment, you need somebody to adjust straps, or to uh, zip a zipper, that sort of thing. Um, you don't need that with this suit. You just pull it on like a full pair of coveralls. It goes on quite easily. And you see now I've pulled it up and I've entered through a zipper that goes across the back. Now that zipper is uh, seals up tightly so that no air goes out of it. And I'll come back to that in just a moment. Now you simply slide your arms in. And you see they go directly through a cuff ring into your surgical gloves. That cuff ring is very important. It allows air that's circulating in the suit to reach your hands and lets them breathe much more easily through an entire shift, let's say. Now I'm going to put the hood on. And now I'll zip it. <coughs> and now I turn on the ventilators. So the first point of the suit is that it is easy to put on. It's very flexible. I can move, I can do anything I want. My air is being brought in through these vents, these fans. And it is directed by hoses up into the helmet area. You'll notice that the helmet does not get clogged. Uh, normally, uh, this helmet might clog up and you wouldn't be able to see. Now, there's plenty of air, though, flowing across the face area, the, the visor, and that prevents fogging. You'll also note that the visor is large and roomy. That's very important over using the suit for many hours. So now you can see, right now, the BD system Barrier to entry and barrier to exit functioning. Barrier to entry is our filters. And then barrier to exit is the length filter. No virus can come in through the filters. Anything that does get through gets quickly washed away from your face. And then everything that goes out of the suit goes out through a filter. We also have 
the uh, facial and frontal exposure elimination. There's no way for any virus particles to be contacted from the front of the face. There are no suit penetrations. There are no suit holes in the front. That's all in the back. So we're eliminating the face-to-face -face contact uh, potential of virus, in particular with COVID. As I mentioned, it's very comfortable. You can see I can use my hands, I could write, I could use a phone, I could use a pen. And I'll also show you that we can sit down nice and easily. And very importantly, I can sit down and the fans will not be blocked. And they do not dig into my suit or my body. I'm seated, and yet the fans continue to run just fine without being blocked. And exit in here. I have a very good rate of flow inside the suit, and so there's no CO2 building up inside. I feel perfectly normal, and we're going to quantify the CO2 numbers in a later test. Right now, the batteries run for a four-hour period, and we can raise that to a seven-hour shift if you like. The battery switch is simply right here in the middle of the chest. We can move that anywhere we like. It could be put on the cuff. It could be on the waist. Those are finer decisions that can be made later. Now I'm going to demonstrate uh, removal of the suit, that is, unzipping it. Uh, but first I'm just going to stand under the light and give you a spin all the way around so you can see all of the features that we've just described. Okay, so uh, there's a lot there, obviously. Uh, just uh, to give you a status of where things are with both the Mars suit and the Q suit, <clears throat> we have startup funding in place for both of these projects. Uh, preliminary design reviews have been completed. CAD design is in work on the Mars suit. Uh, CAD design is complete with the Q suit. Let me comment on that. What you just saw was uh, an early prototype there's a big difference between a prototype that Cam was uh, showing and uh, a production version where you push a button and you can crank out tens of thousands of these for, for uh, distribution worldwide. Uh, <clears throat> that entails taking every little piece and uh, putting it into computer-assisted uh, design. Um, and, and that's very challenging. In fact, that's a more challenging, just overwhelming uh, job from my perspective, but fortunately, we have uh, some groups, uh, a group in the UK that's uh, just about ready to get uh, complete with that job. And you cannot certify this through the FDA for distribution unless you do certification testing of a production version. So having a version like Cam was just showing uh, wouldn't work for, uh, for certification. It has to be a production version. 
which will look a lot, uh, quite a bit different than what you saw. Uh, so we've done five prototypes before that. You see preliminary testing won't take place uh, before 2023 with the Mars suit that's already taken place. Uh, critical design review, probably 2024, 2025 on uh, Mars suit. And that's already been done on the Q suit. And you see certification, you see the timelines of production, all that kind of thing. So uh, we formed Planetary Protect, Preparation, Protection, Prevention to just for these, for these uh, to meet these goals. Uh, and you see who, who, are, who are the folks that, that uh, the founders of uh, the company. And um, I don't want you to think that we're some, uh, some, some um, Hamilton Standard type of organization. Uh, I, I also don't want you to think that we're just a bunch of guys in a garage, but we're not, we're not far from a bunch of guys in a garage, but that's how, uh, that's how Steve Jobs and a lot of other people started. So nothing to be uh, uh, ashamed of. Anyway. A lot of stuff, obviously, a lot of topics, uh, and I'm happy to answer any questions if they're out there, folks. Um, hello, hello, Larry. Uh, this is hello. Madhu. Hello, Madhu. Hi. What, what, what a nice way to start the uh, 2022 uh, series of talks for uh, AAA. Thank you so much, Larry. I've known you a long time, and uh, uh, it's amazing what needs to be done uh, to make uh, a spacesuit work uh, in this uh, uh, 21st century. And uh, um, my question is, Mars is going to take a while. Every single seasoned engineer we sat and talked to uh, in a closed room, it tells me there are just too many hurdles to get to Mars. Um, thinking about Artemis, can, can you tell us anything at all about how we can get there and uh, get down there uh, on the lunar surface and step outside a vehicle uh, by 2025, uh, 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 from what I hear, <laughs> the suits don't work. And uh, uh, any any thoughts? Uh, they'll figure out some way to get on the surface. I don't want to, uh, you know, I don't want to insult anybody by saying that they can't come up. Very brilliant people can't come up with a solution by 2025. I don't think it'll happen by 2025. Yeah. I think it might happen <clears throat> by, <coughs> sorry, 2026. But <clears throat> uh, I don't know who you've talked to about why it's so difficult to get to Mars. But I, I couldn't agree. I couldn't disagree more, Madhu. Uh, <clears throat> I just couldn't disagree more. I'm, I'm just looking for some slides here that can uh, can kind of underline the point. Most of the major barriers we've already uh, we've already addressed. Let me see if I can find some of them here. Um, I'd have to I'd have to look around, but uh, oh wait a second, I think I, I I think I found one here. Wait one minute. <clears throat> oh yeah. Um, 
First of all, a lot of people say uh, the moon is a good place to rehearse for Mars, and that's utterly nonsense. Nonsense. No atmosphere, terrible weather, unchecked radiation, G levels, crops won't grow, spacesuits won't work there on the, on the moon. In situ resources, the resources are different. Uh, Mar the moon doesn't have any clays, organics, or methane. Um, Antarctica is a better place to rehearse for Mars. The gateway doesn't provide good access. I could just go on forever, but but um, here are the major technical barriers that are often stated in terms of uh, human missions to Mars. So anybody that says that this is, this is just, you know, you think Elon Musk is planning on getting there within a decade if these barriers are, are as bad as, as people suggest. First is uh, <clears throat> um, entry, descent, landing. Um, you've all heard about the seven minutes of terror. But there's several solutions that have been proposed, including the hypercone hyper supersonic retro propulsion. These are well uh, in, in mature technology. In mature technologies, uh, can an astronaut land a descent craft after six months in zero g? See Scott Kelly's twin study to, if you want to know about that. Radiation protection. Um, yes, cancer risk can go up as high as ten percent. Uh, it can be partially mitigated, but it's uh, it's a single mission. Uh, for those proposed solution, career limits, uh, and that's it. Immunology, uh, proposed solution using the ISS human research program. Bone loss, up to 15% loss and fracture risk, proposed solution, exercise countermeasures, spacesuits and life support systems, you already see that. All these barriers are being addressed, tumbling down, and um, no, no one less knowledgeable than uh, Neil Armstrong underscored the point. The moon in 1969 versus Mars today, the challenge then, this is his own words, was greater than it is now. And it was accomplished in less than a decade. So I honest, honestly have no, um, have no sympathy with people who think that we really can't uh, do this in, in, in short order. And we're not ready to do this. And as far as why should we do it, that's different. Um, public, public interest over 16 billion hits. Two for every human being on Earth, on Mars, not the moon. Uh, next giant leap, livable, sustainable, settleable, familiar. It cuts its education. It just a uh, hot button uh, for students. Economics, it can be a cost-effective uh, cost way with quantifiable benefits. Uh, rocket fuel can be made there for the, tri for, for the trip back with Bob Zubrin's uh, Mars Direct 19th century technology. It just is not, it's not worth really getting into all that, but. Um, I really have no clue how to answer you going back to your, your initial question, Madhu. How? Uh... Yeah, I, I, I appreciate I appreciate that um, all of us, every single one of us wants to go to Mars. But um, as you mentioned, um, when you showed that uh, list of the numbers uh, of things we need to do and the things can, that can be accomplished, there is a number zero up front, Larry, and that is we don't even know how to stack a Mars orbital vehicle in low Earth orbit up to 600 to 800 metric tons to go into trans-Mars injection right now. But to the moon, we can go now. We don't even need a starship. We can you know, you must be Falcon kidding. I want to get in an argument with you like years ago, Madhu, but you must be kidding. You honestly are going to believe in, in the SLS which is 
12 years behind schedule, billions of dollars over cost and, and dumps everything into the ocean at staggering cost. You actually think that that's what we're gonna use. Let me tell you something. Yeah, let me tell you something. Elon Musk is gonna have, uh, hopefully, is gonna have Starship able to do this. And you've seen, if you haven't seen them, you need to see how he's going to do it. Because it's well-established. We're not talking about something that's coming out of nowhere. So we can, we can talk about, we can talk about that. Anyway, look, you've got, I assume you've got plenty of people with maybe more specific questions. Oh, I'm rather sure, than, I'm sure there are. Uh, you know, um, Larry, I, I thoroughly enjoy uh, the, uh, the discussion and your slides. Um, and I think everybody should know Larry was my teacher at the, at the Interna International Space <laughs> University way back, I don't know when. And, uh, yeah, he argued with me back then as a student. He argued with me. <laughs> he hasn't stopped. <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, regarding SpaceX, I think they don't even need the Starship to take us to the moon, Larry. Between F9 and um, Falcon Heavy, we can do this using Malio, you know, in low Earth orbit assembly and modular yeah, cluster. I think there's a lot of people who want to ask questions, so we can get into the okay. philosophy doing space. So, yeah, go for it. Thank you so much. Wonderful talk. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Thank. Thank you, Madhu. Uh, Madhu is a professor uh, in USC, and uh, he's actually uh, 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 very uh, vital uh, for for uh, the you know the, this type of uh, study. Uh, so so you know uh, thank, thank you Madhu it's great great happy new year talk so uh, well, Luis go ahead do you have other questions Ken? oh yeah, yeah, yeah no I have a quick question um it was about the motive for going to the moon um you know I've been reading all these things since I was like a kid I read this book I mean it was back granted it was in the 70s um you know the third industrial revolution and I always think that big business um is always behind you know or finance stuff and I'm what I was going to ask you um well, I guess your opinion about, do you think that um, part of the motivation is, I don't know, to utilize the moon, to mine the moon? I don't know how practical that sounds, but like you were alluding to just now, or what you were talking about, saying that it may not seem possible at all um, to go to Mars, you know, I mean, that technology doesn't exist to mine the moon, but I would imagine it's got to be more than just scientific, because then I agree with you, what's the point of going to the moon, you know, spending all this money? Um, uh, yeah. Oh, what's your name? Oh, uh, Lewis. Lewis. Yeah. Uh, look, you, you couldn't be uh, you, you couldn't be a writer. Uh, all of these projects. And again, it, I always go back to those who ignore history and doomed to repeat it. If you don't think there's a military motivation in doing this or, a, a, you know, a cap, a, you know, we, we've been talking about uh, helium three for three decades. We're going to mine helium three on the moon. We need to power nuclear fusion reactors. Give me a break. Where's your fusion reaction? Really, we're gonna. We're, we're, the reason we're probably gonna go to the moon is because the Chinese are gonna do it if we don't. There's gonna be another space race on the moon. This is insanity. This is human insanity. That's what it is. You can't live, survive. Take a look at that environment. What the astronauts themselves, the first time they saw it, what did they say? I mean, that's they're there. None of us have been there. This is all nonsense. We're all talking. Take it. Take the word of the people of when their Apollo eight actually laid eyes on that environment and what Buzz Aldrin said. This is where we're going and spending 
billions to get there. I can't get it. Uh, maybe there'll be another election and another administrator, but, but fortunately for, for most of us, we live in a time where uh, Elon Musk wants to die on the moon. He believes all of these things. He's willing to put, his, he's willing to bankrupt himself to get us there. And that's great. I think that's fabulous. And people like that come along once in a lifetime, like Thomas Edison. I don't like to just gush over Elon. He's got his faults like every one of us, right? But let me tell you, if it was up to NASA, it had never happened. We'd be in another black hole. And this space launch system, oh my God. Oh my God. I mean, you know, uh, the, all you have to know about the space launch system is that the main engines on it were, derived, were shuttle derived. They, they, they're they're uh, incredible technology. It took so much to get to, to evolve those to this point. And the whole message of the space shuttle was reusability and the space launch system is gonna drop those engines right in the Atlantic, plunk the end of them. Not even think twice about it. I mean, how do you, how does NASA justify that? I don't understand, but anyway. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree, yeah, definitely, yeah. Industry and so, military. Yeah, there's, there's military, there's commercial, there's uh, competition, all the wrong reasons, all the wrong reasons. It's the history, right? That's it. Yeah. yeah. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. And thank you sure. for the lecture. Sure. Wonderful. Sure. Thank you. Thank you, Luis. Uh, Tasha, you are next. Tasha, go ahead. Oh, hi. I wanted to know if it was feasible for spacesuits to be built in a way where most of the components are interchangeable. And also, when we, what will we equip the Mars and lunar astronauts with such that they will be able to repair broken spacesuits? Because the repair system will probably be more complex than just having them 3D print some stuff, I imagine. <laughs> well, I suspect the Artemis EMU is going to be, uh, but we've had, we've had suits that are developed um, for where you can replace the components. The, you, you have a hard upper torso, but then the shoulders fit, different size shoulders, different size, you know, leg fittings, all that stuff. So you, you can make them, but otherwise you'd have to make these individually fit and they're not individually fit. Uh, they're just small, medium, large, extra large. There, there was a size, there was an issue and it still may be with, with the uh, shuttle and uh, ISS being too small. Bonnie Dunbar, a five-time uh, shuttle astronaut, uh, complained uh, vehemently that uh, she could no longer perform in the smaller size spacesuits uh, well enough to qualify for another flight because in order to fly, you've got to do some performance tests in a, in a neutral buoyancy lab. And uh, your score is rated against other people. And because she didn't have a, a small size fit, a small size suit that fit properly, uh, she actually made quite a bit of protest to try to get that implemented. It never was to my knowledge. But uh, I, I'm, I feel certain, especially with the, the, the push for equal gender uh, on, on Artemis that uh, the sizing issue for, for females is not gonna be an issue uh, quite. I have to give kudos to, to NASA for, for pushing hard for a multi-gender, multi-sized uh, design. So I do not think that's going to be a problem. It's going to be far less of a problem on Mars because the, the you know, you're going to have a suit that's 150 pounds lighter. So, so there you go. Uh, in, in, in so many ways, it's going to be so much simpler and easier to use. Hope that answers your question. 
Yeah, I guess also um, what would be stuff that we would equip the astronauts with so that they could repair it on their own? Uh, good question. Uh, repair the suit? Well, it, yeah, you, you would hope we would learn something from what happened with, uh, with Columbia uh, with a tile repair. Uh, a tile repair kit was put together in the, in the garage uh, in, in Houston by uh, my, my buddy Charlie Carter and uh, I forget, God, what's his name? Really well-known astronauts no longer with, but they, they figured out a tile repair kit uh, that could plug a hole. And that, uh, people are aware of that. So you would hope that that is one of the one of the one of the requirements of the RFP, and I don't know. I don't know if it is because we're not going to know again until this contract is awarded. This what they have right now is NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, and so people can't tell you what they're doing. Um, you can look at the RFP, and the RFP. I didn't look that hard, but I couldn't find any part of it that said a requirement for in-suit repair. But um, somebody's thinking about it. Thanks for mentioning it. It hadn't occurred to me. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, thank you, Tasha. So next, uh, Colonel Shotis, go ahead. Uh, yes, uh, Dr. Kuznets, thanks very much for your presentation. Uh, I'm certainly not an expert in your field, uh, but I did enjoy uh, the, the particular issues that you raised that have to be uh, uh, overcome. You did mention uh, during the course of your talk the importance and the impact of the time delay between Earth and Mars. Uh, what are your thoughts uh, about instead of having centralized mission control at Earth, the routine activities on Mars, that that mission control for operation, routine operations on Mars occur at, at Mars? Uh, it's a great idea. Uh, it requires uh, infrastructure, uh, cost, people. And so the intermediate step was the one I showed you, uh, Violet, voice initiated operations for lunar Mars uh, um, communications. So, and you saw it being demonstrated by Chris Cassidy. So that will be an AI bioadvisory algorithm. Uh, it's already been written, the first, first steps as you saw demonstrated has already been written. But really, it takes um, it takes people uh, doing simulations and, and figuring out all the things that could go wrong and building it into the suit. So the suit basically knows when you have an emergency and also has diagnostics to tell you how to fix it. Uh, that's that's the intermediate step. But in in the long run, sure. But um, if you if you talk, you know that that's about the. The best, the best I could offer on that one, yeah. It's a great project, by the way, an AI, uh, AI effort to, to figure all that out and build it into the suit. Um, there's a, like, for instance, even the communication that you saw that uh, Chris was talking to the suit and asking what my metabolic rate is and tell me a joke, uh, that, that requires a lot of uh, intelligent uh, gathering about uh, communication between astronauts and in LEO on ISS and the shuttle with mission control, all that can be harvested and put into AI and then programmed into a, uh, uh, 
Thanks for the question. Yeah, AI will obviously be utilized. However, oftentimes things that or thought out before in fact are the ones that come out the bunch first, oftentimes. And having a person in the loop is certainly an advantage. Now, for an early version of Mars, having the, uh, an individual who is in orbit about Mars could be the effort and uh, the individual who is effectively doing mission control for routine operations. Do you see any, any issues associated with that between uh, what NASA would like to see versus what the needs of a mission might actually be? And I'll also I'll mute myself. And uh, actually, I, I don't see any issues. Uh, I, I've given it some thought. Uh, I've written a novel uh, I'm going to do with Reddit called Cassie's Guess. It's about the first uh, human mission to Mars. Um, it, it's uh, basically it's an environmental climate climate novel. It, it, it looks at what's happened on Mars in terms of losing its atmosphere and its uh, water and uh, potentially life in the geologic heartbeat and how we might learn from that as to what, what's happening now on Earth and how this first mission, their, their objective is to go find out what happened there. And um, it, uh, I use a crew of six, they're all cross-trained. Uh, so everybody, best way to handle this is you have to have a cross-trained uh, crew. And some of those crew would have to have, be versed in exactly what you're talking about. Um, and other ones would be cross-trained to a lesser degree. Uh, so uh, that's, that's, that's my uh, initial thoughts on that uh, element of it. I guess I, I'd like to follow up just a little bit and, and say this would be probably limited to some extent. That is, uh, for truly routine operations that don't involve any emergencies. And if a mishap or some condition arises, it would be recovery from emergency. Uh, so the, the short-term response, any longer-term response would have to involve expertise back at Earth. And, uh, and so you get into a, a situation where you, you, can, you can live at the time below, uh, but you try to extricate yourself from the emergency as quickly as possible. Yeah, you, you know, there's a, a curiosity was uh, it did not have the capability to make a lot of decisions. It was a low end of semi-autonomous, but Perseverance has uh, has benefited from a lot of a lot of AI that's gone into it, where Perseverance can make decisions that the curiosity couldn't as, as to when to stop and how to replot the the, uh, the path. The way these uh, these um, rover missions are generally run is that the the, um, the team back in JPL and Caltech looks at uh, looks at where the rover is, looks at the next uh, the surrounding terrain, and plots a course and sends that information, uploads that information, and and so uh, each day is a stepwise safest way to do it. But now there's uh, there's semi there's, there's autonomy being built in. So we've learned a lot in how to negotiate the uh, uh, hazardous terrain, among other things. So I, you know, this is and, and as you say, there are intermediate steps of 
of, of priority and uh, they're going to have to be handled. But uh, anyway, I appreciate your question. Anyway, got some more, Ken? Yeah, uh, thanks, Colonel Shote. So uh, next, uh, James, uh, Mr. Sloan, go ahead. Okay, uh, my question is about the uh, ceiling uh, between the torso and the helmet. Uh, uh, how exactly is that accomplished? Is it a matter that there's a very slight pressure between the two? Uh, oh, could you ceiling. elaborate that? Yeah, okay, there's, there's multiple candidates for that. Right now, it's a flap. You know, it's a, uh, it's a trade-off because um, you don't want to strangle somebody with a flap that's around their neck or make them uncomfortable. Uh, and at the same time, um, you want to provide as much mobility and ease of, of use as possible. So we've looked at everything from a shoulder seal that goes around the, the, uh, um, the upper chest uh, all the way to a just a cannula where you basically breathe into a, a mask and everything else is uh, surrounded. Uh, the one that's being tested right now is a, a flap that uh, that's uh, just right above the shoulders or the helmet. And uh, it, you saw there was little discomfort in there. Our next round of testing is, cause it is going to be dedicated to how good a seal is it. So how are we going to do that? You might ask. You don't want to poison anybody. Uh, and the way we're going to do it is we're going to have uh, air oxygen that's uh, got something added to it, like a fragrance or a color, uh, so that we can see if any of that has migrated into the helmet from the torso. The other thing to keep in mind is that the, uh, the helmet pressure will be slightly above that of the torso. There will not be if there's any, any transmission of gases, it's gonna be from small amounts of oxygen down, not carbon dioxide up. And of course there'll be appropriate sensors and the ability to change that uh, flow rate. So all of these things are, uh, are consideration. You know, um, nobody's going out there and buying our Mars suit today. And we never, never got in that mode of doing that. We have investors that understand that and uh, our attitude is, look, if, uh, if we're not going to Mars for 10 years, the only, only thing we have to worry about is at the time when a, a decision is actually made at the highest levels, we will have a suit that's ready. In other words, build it and they will come. That's our attitude. And it'd be great to have uh, big bucks partners like uh, SpaceX or whoever else wants to come and say, hey, we love this concept. Uh, we're going to make it happen faster and sooner. Uh, that'd be wonderful. But uh, that is not necessary. We're dedicated. We've been doing this a long time. We have sufficient funding to get the barriers, uh, no pun intended, uh, addressed in a timely manner. And so that's what's going on. I'm sorry, I do have one other question. Uh, what would be the minimum uh, pressure for the torso? Well, but we're targeting both at three and a half psi. That's the absolute minimum because that's the minimum pressure of, uh, used during Apollo, 3.5, 3.7. That's the oxygen pressure. You start off with the oxygen pressure and then the torso pressure matches it. So you have to match the pressures uh, and that, that's how you decide on that. The other part of the, of the uh, formula is uh, pre-breathe and uh, um, requirements to prevent uh, um, 
you know, the bends if you step yeah. out from the high pressure or low pressure environment without having to breathe oxygen. So that all depends on what the, the um, habitat environment is. If the habitat environment is eight, pound, eight PSI, you can, use a, you can use a five PSI suit and you won't have to pre-breathe. If the habitat pressure is eight PSI and use a 3.5 PSI suit, you have to pre-breathe a short period of time to get the nitrogen removed from your tissues before you can step out. These are all considerations. Uh, and and the, those in turn have other requirements because the more the habitat pressure is, the thicker you have to make the walls of the habitat. And the more uh, consumables you have to have, and the higher the suit pressure, the stiffer the, the, the material and the harder you have to work against the suit. All of these things are trade-offs that uh, need to be done on an on a iterative scale. So um, we're starting, I don't know what drives what. There, there's a lot of things uh, from the top down, the decision is made. You, you start with the suit, the suit pressure drives everything else. Do you relax the pre-breather requirements saying, okay, you can pre-breathe for 30 minutes, therefore you can make the pressure uh, lower in the suit and higher in the habitat. Uh, the materials we try, I mean, is that this is a really complex, multi-variable decision to arrive at, the, at that answer. But we're, we're starting for, from, the, from the point of maximum mobility, maximum usability, maximum function, and, uh, and minimum pressure that we can do. So that's where we're targeting now. Thanks for that question. Okay, thanks. Uh, thank you, James. So next is Randall. Randall, go ahead. Uh, Randall, your mic is is uh, enabled, so you can speak out. <coughs> Randall, can you can you speak out? What? Well, or maybe his mic. Mike has some issues, so uh, let me see. Yeah, Randall, you are, let me see, um, asked to, Randall, can you speak out? Uh, if not, I will just read uh, his question. Uh, his, his first question is, the talk on Mars suit was very interesting. Uh, thank you, I enjoy your talk immensely, that's great. Uh, with regard to the Q suit, the source with regard to the contamination of the exterior of the suit uh, contact, bracket contact, and are the filters replaceable? Does filter replacement require special procedures and the protection during decontamination, bracket uh, contact? <coughs> uh, the filters are replaceable and in a couple of minutes, basically you unscrew it in the, in the production version, you unscrew uh, a cap, uh, you, you put a, another super HEPA filter in place right in there. By the way, <clears throat> super HEPA filters are designed to last over a year uh, before replacement. So um, you, don't have to, you don't have to use these each time. Uh, you can use them as, uh, as, as people see fit. Uh, they're inexpensive. Um, the, notion that this, the notion that you could wear the suit for 14 days, I know it seems uh, onerous, uh, unless you happen to be in a place with a rapid outbreak response. But we, we're planning on building into, into the suit a way to get um, to a sterilizable room, a way to change out of the suit into a, uh, a safe quarantine room uh, for, for whatever, showers, uh, food, what have you, uh, waste management, all those things. 
but we're, we're also we're also planning on having all of those features built into the suit itself so it can sustain somebody um, for long periods if you have to be in that environment. But keep in mind like the uh, coronavirus has a viability of about three days. Uh, after three days, um, it's, it's no longer uh, a threat. And so, so that's why I don't know how many people know this, but if you have, if you have uh, three good masks like N95 or KN95, uh, four would be better lined up on your dresser. Uh, the way to ensure you're not gonna, you can keep using these masks is just, uh, just wear one a day, go down the line and start again. And after three or four days, you won't have to worry uh, that, the, the, uh, the, that the mask is uh, not, not functioning properly. Okay, uh, thanks for Rendell's question. So next is Andrea. Andrea, uh, yeah, he, he uh, she was uh, showed a video. Do you want to say something, Andrea? Hi. Andrea, go ahead. Hi. Oh, I don't have any questions. Um, I just want to thank you for an excellent uh, presentation. I, I listened to a lot of these, and this is like way at the top. And um, I like the spirited conversation that you had with Madhu. I think that the debate's great. It, um, it helps my caffeine kick in and <laughs> wakes me up a little bit. I want, I want to tell you, I really appreciate that because I'm not a vanilla type person. So I like, I like the debate. And um, I think the best comments uh, come out of debate. I really do. That's when I, when, that's when I start furiously taking notes when, when you guys are talking about different points of view. So and you, should, you should have seen some of the debates Madhu had, Madhu and I had back at the first ISU about landing a, uh, landing a whole lunar base uh, on the moon, uh, which was <clears throat> Madhu's idea. It was a great idea where you assemble the lunar base in orbit around Earth and you, you, you carry the entire assembled base and land it uh, whole on the moon uh, as opposed to building it on the moon piecewise. And that we had, how many students we had? We had 110 students and boy, did that split them in half. And that was quite a massive amount of arguing and debating what you're gonna do. You're gonna build a base in, in low earth. You're gonna build a space station in low earth orbit and you're gonna land it on the moon. Are you crazy? So, I mean, that, that was a lot of fun. I, I love it. Well, I'm a classroom teacher. So I, I like this, the stimulus. I like the, you know, I, I don't like apathy. I'd rather see my students arguing their yeah. positions than just sitting there blanking, blankly staring at me like I'm on a stage and I'm, they're supposed to be entertained. I mean, the, I wanna see engagement. I don't wanna sit, just talk to a blank wall. Uh, uh, Andrea, I, I'm, I'm planted here to, to, make, to make this an enjoyable discussion. <laughs> so, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm happy but to I have to, not to argue with you about this, but I have two questions. <laughs> for oh no, here we go, another one. <laughs> here we go, another one. <clears throat> so <clears throat> the dilemma, always the dilemma in a presentation like this, is there's a massive amount of material in a short time and there's limited time for questions and even more limited time for debate. That, you know, if you have, this is already, 
one and at least one and a half times the normal time I have for a talk like this. I give a lot of these talks on cruise ships uh, in, in, to audiences of 200 or more and, and universities. Generally, I've got 45 to 50 minutes for all of it. And, and this, you saw this, this is, uh, gosh, at least an hour of talking and showing slides. And you don't want to, you don't want to seem like you're on a hobby horse running through pedaling because then you, you lose the, you lose the ability to express yourself and, and get people motivated, like you say. But then you, you bumped up against uh, questions at the end. It's really difficult. So um, unless you're given more time, which in a classroom, I'm sure you have the same concerns in a classroom when you're giving a limited time. The other question I had for you is uh, uh, the hypernet paradigm. I really think that this is a, a breakthrough way to communicate. And what we did at UC Berkeley with the, with the hypernet paradigm is we threw away the idea of tests. Uh, you, would, you would take this class, you would get involved with Mars spacesuit design or, or cancer research, whatever else it is. And uh, the teams would get involved and each team would be, those teams were like, uh, those teams were like an industry. They had a schedule, they had bullet points, they had targets, they had uh, responsibility that they had to meet all of these goals. Every person had a goal that they had to meet. That's how their grade was given, as if they were working, not as if they had to regurgitate something that they memorized. And so that's why, uh, that's why I think we're able to get so far with this, this hypernet paradigm. And um, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, that something like that makes its way into, into classrooms of the future. Just, if you have any comments, I don't know. But the, the, the other, one other thing that I wanted to know that I've noticed, which is really fantastic, is when you have like 60 people in a class and you give them something like this, uh, you find out very quickly there are leaders, there are followers in the whole thing. It's like a bell curve. And you don't have to, you don't have to assign responsibility because the responsibility seems to surface by itself. Yeah. Somebody takes lead and they say, okay, I'm going to do this. And what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And crazy as it sounds it all works it seems to work on its own yeah you just throw it out there and then you step back the the teachers um one of the biggest amateur moves that an instructor will make when they first start teaching is they try to uh lead everything and the more the more cured a teacher is more experienced the less they speak in the classroom so they just kind of um throw out all the ingredients and stimulate the conversation, then they have to learn how to stand back. Yeah, yeah. And that's when the magic happens. And it take, the problem with, this is the problem with the classroom. I'm sorry, I'm going on my own platform, but oh, this is educate, education is, is the beginning of everything else in my world. So um, with your world, with Madhu's, everyone's, education is how it starts. So um, they only give me 50 minutes to present my material, 5-0, 50 minutes. And that's yeah. criminal because it takes me 40 to 45 minutes to warm up my class. The, to get those kids, especially the morning classes, it takes literally me pretty much 40 to 45 minutes and it's very predictable to warm up the brain and get them to absorb or <laughs> processing the material that I'm giving them. And then they start coming up with their own ideas and thoughts. And, and that's when the, um, the creative part kicks in. Mm -hmm. And 
and it gets really good at the last like five or 10 minutes of my class, really juicy. And then the, <laughs> and then the dismissal bell rings. It's like, yeah. oh, you know, so well, that's, I have a that's a problem. Yeah, I have a suggestion. We, first of all, the hypernet paradigm, we understood right away, it had to be geographically uh, dispersed. We, we didn't have people in the same room. We didn't have people even in the, some of them even in the same country. So we had to have a way of getting this material uh, out and, and reviewed by everybody. And the way we did it was we had a whiteboard. Uh, we had one section of the, of, of, the, of, of the paradigm was devoted to toss your ideas on a wall after you've had a chance to digest all this stuff and then everybody else critique it. And then another section was who's done work on this in the past. So we would provide uh, past work and articles. You can read all of this stuff, you know, and, and see what other people have done. So you don't, one thing you don't want to do is reinvent the wheel. If I told you to invent a, a Mars space suit, you were just starting now, you wouldn't want to go back and, and do all the things that we've done. So you have to have one of the tools has to be a, a tool where you, you find out what everybody's done. You can call it up anytime. Another one has to be, here's a whiteboard. Here are some of my ideas. Another one has to be a way to critique. And another one has to be, a, let's get together. Let's do it two o'clock in the morning. Let's do it this time. When, when are you good to do all this? So you, you cannot, the classroom is restricted. It's for all the reasons that you said, it's really restricted. And uh, one of the good things about the, that's coming out of this whole COVID deal is that maybe we're going to learn that you, you can have a vastly improved way of communicating time-wise in, in other ways if you, if you optimize the virtual presence and you put tools into the virtual. Most of the virtual presence that I've seen, they don't have these tools, but they can because they don't have to be time limited and classroom limited. Yeah, my-, my said are, are, are limitations on learning. My enemy, my enemy is the clock. I, yeah, I know. the minute I walk into the classroom, I'm at war with that clock. Oh. And I look at that oh. clock and I don't like that clock. And oh. it's constantly ticking and you know, the, I, I'm doing me analog right now, get it? Analog? Oh. <laughs> the, the, the hands are going like <laughs> this right clock, analog. Um, but it, I'm constantly fighting that. It's it's a horrible thing. It's the, the classroom paradigm is not set up for what I do. Um, <laughs> I give a lot of homework to the kids and send links to the parents and all sorts of stuff because there's so much stuff that they need to input to, to absorb and process um, that I can't, I can't even get to it. And I'm just like trying to, to create a spark yeah. when yeah. I'm in the classroom. Andrea, all of us, all of us face this problem about meeting length, the meeting times. In our class, um, of course, it's a graduate class. Um, most of the work gets done on email. And I bring this up in the classroom. Uh, you know, if you want to improve your project, you have to communicate. And uh, uh, everybody will agree that um, dialogue and discussion uh, is far more important than all the PowerPoint charts that you can bring up. And I think Larry mentioned too, that archives are important. You know, 
you post them, you put them whatever way you like, uh, it helps all the students to zoom in on what's been done before, you know, no need to reinvent the wheel and things like that, then it helps. But you're absolutely right. Meeting times are short. You know, I get two hours and 40 minutes, two hours and 40 minutes. And even that is not enough to get people fired up on, on uh, creative ideas. But uh, Ace, that is Yeah, fine. you need a, we, we generated a tool for that. Uh, and um, it, might, it might be good to look at that tool because it, it, the whole pro point of it was to, to have as part of your, your, your armor to do this, ways to do exactly what I was saying before. Who's done the work? What do you think of it? Uh, when can we meet? There's, there's one that uh, my friend, uh, Charlie Camarda, the astronaut that came up with, uh, he's got, I don't know, 500 students in Finland that he's working on something called the Epic Challenge. It's, uh, it's just the type in the epic challenge. This is the whole point of the epic challenge is to address all of these issues that you're talking about. But it, it seems to filter down to the your level or the classroom level, Andrea's classroom level, so slowly and with so much resistance. They are very uh, resistant to any, any kind of changes in the way things have done. Yeah, just like NASA. Yeah. Just like this. Yeah. Uh, Larry, I think I think it was out of UC Berkeley that I first heard the term uh, flipped classroom. Um, the idea is uh, that you tell your students uh, the meeting before what you'll be discussing uh, in the coming meeting. And then you know, rather than engage them uh, with slides and so on, uh, pull them up and ask them uh, uh, some critical questions and um, uh, ask them to bring up uh, ideas they think are relevant uh, to the topic of discussion. So, so you really are making them the presenter and not the teacher. And uh, this works some of the time and in our class too, um, you know, if we have a creative uh, development in progress, um, I email them and tell them, hey, this is what we'll be talking about in the next class. Uh, please refer to these documents and come into class uh, and, and start a discussion. So, so we flip the, the idea of who is in control of your discussion and who is the <coughs> moderator. You know, the teacher does not just, just pout stuff out, but uh, they, uh, he or she moderates. And uh, as students get a lot of exciting information. You know, I mean, we do this for homework and assignments, right? Students get together and discuss how to solve a problem. We bring it into the classroom too. It works some of the time, Andrea. Well, communication yep. is very important. And that's one of the things that I teach in my classes mm -hmm. is communication, because no matter what industry you go into, you have to be able to communicate. Even, yeah. if, even if you're going into your boss to ask for a raise, and you have to justify the rate, your request for the raise, you have to be able to communicate <laughs> what yeah, but, you want. I know, I know it's, it's very important. Um, and now before I leave you, Larry, um, it's good to see you. I must ask one more sharp and pointed question. But before you now, do, you know, Mr. Hold on, before <laughs> you do, I have, there are three questions I see. Oh, you do, open. you do, okay. 
Yeah, one is from, uh, I don't know if they're still on, Michael Alowitz. Yeah. Oh, the sound escape and penetrate the suits. I wasn't clear how the subject was mic'd. Mike is um, online. Mike is online. Yeah, if you, want, online. if you want him to explain, he can explain. I'm here. I'm just going to listen to the answer. Yeah, he's just going to listen. So I'll, I'll, I'll say that, uh, uh, I'll say sound, sound, of course, on Earth, sound does penetrate the spacesuit. Uh, on Mars, it will penetrate the spacesuit to some degree, but the, there's, so, there's one one hundredth of an atmosphere there, so sound depends on molecular vibration, so it's not going to be as great. And on the moon, nothing's going to penetrate it unless it's in contact with the suit itself. Uh, so yeah, you can hear those. Uh, you can hear the. You, you can hear him talking because uh, on Earth, the. Um, you, you, in that in that testing that he did for the Mars suit, he can talk long enough. I mean, loud enough so we could all hear him. And the the ventilators are not that loud, but uh, certainly it's a you know they'll be mic'd up, of course, so that won't be an issue there. Um, Joseph uh, Schultz has a question about, uh, do we believe the US can adequately um, define the requirements of a lunar EMU and a Mars EMU so that we can unleash US companies and organizations? Uh, that's what's going on right now. I mean, NASA, NASA basically issues the requirements and that's what's in the RFP. You can find the RFP for the Artemis spacesuit. Just, just type in on your browser, uh, Artemis spacesuit, RFP a request for proposal and you can actually read it. I think it's public uh, knowledge. It's a big document and it'll tell you what the requirements are. Then it's up to whoever wants to bid and I gave you a whole list of, of those organizations. And uh, those, those companies uh, have been around a while and they certainly are gonna come up with individual concepts. If you don't know how that how the winner is selected, it's a, you know, I've been part of those review teams. It, it's, it's quite elaborate. Uh, you know, lots of different categories of, uh, of competence are selected, like, uh, do you have any experience? Does your company have experience doing this kind of thing? Who are your people? What's the cost benefit? How do you propose to, uh, to handle this element and that element and this? So all those things come together and each, each, each one of these gets a score. And, you know, it takes weeks, literally, for the evaluators to come together and look at the proposals and come up with a score. And that's how it's usually done. So it's not all the cheapest, uh, it's not always the cheap uh, proposal wins the, wins the race, as is evidenced by what happened back in the Apollo era when uh, ILC won the contract. And again, if you haven't seen it, it's fascinating. You need to get that and watch how that contract was originally awarded and what happened after it was awarded. It's just, uh, it's kind of history you don't want to have to repeat. Okay, then there's, uh, I see Jasper Singh is asking about um, um, where can you, where can a student find uh, requirements and design analysis studies? And they're all over the place. If you, if you Google my name or UC Berkeley, uh, what, I would, what I would say, if you really want to start on what we did, you can go to, to um, you can go two sources I would go to is uh, Twitter, go to ME292 like mechanical engineering 292 and you'll see a whole list of uh, presentations by our students uh, putting this whole thing together. This is about three years ago, putting elements of it together. And if you go to uh, my YouTube channel, which is under the name N2Mars, the letter N, the number two M-A-R-S, I think I've got 60, uh, 
60 videos on there. And uh, quite a few of them have to do with uh, spacesuit, Mars spacesuit design. But the one that, the one that uh, captures a lot of this is, um, is called, um, uh, Mar it's the Humans to Mars Conference presentation uh, where, where a lot of us presented. And I'm not, uh, I would suggest if anybody's really interested in this, the Humans to Mars Conference, um, is going to be next May in uh, in, um, in Washington D.C. or Explore Mars. So I would I would suggest you do that. Okay. Any anybody else need questions yeah. answered? Annette, Annette has a question. Annette, go ahead. Hi. Annette? Thank you. I was listening to everybody else, and fortunately, a lot of my colleagues already asked the questions and had them answered. Um, I work in bioengineering and biosecurity, so my particular interest is the terrestrial applications of the Q-suit. And I appreciate that you answered all of those questions. The two questions that I do have is if you said that you have the hyper um, HEPA filter that is on there, but are the filters interchangeable to address different pathogenic threats as we identify them? So depending on the yeah. environment, if it's Sorry. Yes, if you if you come up with a better filter, uh, we can just cut it to size, stick it in the cap, screw it in, and you're done. And uh, and again, they're redundant. That's why there were four of them, uh, two up above and two down below. Interestingly, on the exit, uh, you know, a lot of thoughts given to all these elements that they're all on the back, so there's no face-to-face -face exposure. The intake is higher, um, away from talking to anybody, but the exit is down at the floor. So that if you dump anything, it happens to anything happens to, to, to get out, uh, it's gonna go, the air is gonna go down below to the floor, uh, to a surface rather than into the airstream. So, uh, but all, all of the filtration systems are designed to just unscrew a cap, put another filter in. Uh, as I mentioned before, coronavirus is about 1.125 micron, 0.13 micron. And right now it's super half the filters we're using are a tenth of a micron. So they'll stop an individual uh, pathogen. Um, and uh, most of the super HEPA filters work, I believe, on uh, ionic uh, uh, chemical, chemical rather than, uh, you know, in addition to trapping the particles themselves. Uh, the, 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 what, we're, what we're dealing with now is since we don't have, we're looking for a partner to mass produce this in, in, in quantity and, and make the, the rapid outbreak response a reality. So the rapid outbreak response depends on making arrangements with, uh, with organizations, states, agencies, schools, uh, you know, whoever, you know, medical facilities. So uh, this, this, takes, this takes effort um, to the next level of where we are. And, and um, it's really satisfying to watch how this, uh, how the Q suit came together and it's now at the point of pretty close to finishing a, uh, a production version that can go through the certification. But after the certification, then, then the next step is, okay, we wanna make 100,000 of them, we wanna have contracts, so how do we do that? And that, that requires uh, partnerships that we don't have at the moment. Thank you for so much for taking the time to discuss and present all of this with us and also taking the time to answer all of our questions. Oh, my pleasure, thanks. Uh, thank you, Annette. So, uh, Dr. Kuznet, that's all the questions. So we can go back to Madhu if you like.
Okay, sure. Do? You are muted. Oh, my question had to do with uh, what uh, Annette left off. Uh, any idea how much these Q suits uh, cost, Larry? I mean, a vague idea on production um, cost? <clears throat> Our target cost is $200 or less, Madhu. Yeah, well, you know. We've done, uh, you know, we've done an analysis of what PPE costs. So I can tell you this, just going to a dentist's office, and if you, if you look what the hygienist is wearing and the dentist is wearing, or blood labs or uh, hospitals, each one of those gowns, masks, et cetera, when you, when you add them all up uh, together, they cost at least 25 bucks a shot, at least. But on top of that, you're talking about between donning and doffing an hour of time and then a throwaway. And yeah. so if you wear that up over the cost of a, a cost of a year, you're looking at thousands of dollars per unit as opposed to what this is projected to cost reusable and re-sterilizable. So that's where we think though we have a real edge uh, with this. But again, you know, an edge on paper is not an edge in reality. We we need to forge the partnerships. Yeah. Uh, which is which is actually not as easy as it might sound because those companies making PPE, a lot of them in China, yeah. they don't want to, they make that stuff for next to nothing. They send it out, they're making a markup, they're selling thousands of them. You know, it's, it's like, you got to get past that. You know, would they take it on uh, instead of using slave labor to make something that cost them cents, you know? Yeah, yeah you know, it's, it's, a, it's a battle. You got to find the right partners. It would sure be nice to have somebody like a Gates or a, you know, uh, Elon or whoever you want in, in name to, to partner with us to say, we really believe in doing this. Uh, it's the way we can stop the next pandemic, which again, could be, make this look like nothing. Yeah. Uh, it's gonna, oh. so there you go. And um, um, uh, regarding um, COVID, uh, uh, Larry, um, am I right to think that you don't need you don't need a full body suit. I mean, they do that in the hospitals, we know, but um, but the pathogen uh, mainly enters through um, uh, through your uh, breathing, uh, you know, through your lungs, and um, infects the patient. So. Um, is it possible to imagine something that just um, no, 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 absolutely not. Absolutely not. I'll tell you why. First of all, you, you wouldn't want to have that discussion with some of the hundreds or thousands of hospital yeah. person wearing masks yeah. who, who basically ended up on ventilators, ventilators uh, yeah. uh, because they took all the right precautions. Yeah. To say we know how this works is a gross mistake. Mistake, yeah. Uh, yeah. Say how it can get in. Uh, but more to the point, when we started designing this, which is a, about a year and a half ago, we assumed COVID would be over. We did not do no. this for COVID. That mm -hmm. hey, wait a minute, this is probably transferred by a bat or some some animal that somebody ate. And uh, don't get me started on that because uh, 
history history has shown it's it's from eating meat, transferring from animals. Uh, I think the term is zoonotic. I think the term is zoonotic. Yeah. Um, so uh, the, become a uh, vegan. Yeah. Help yourself. If we were all vegans, this wouldn't happen. But that ain't happening so soon. Oh well, I can't thank you enough. I mean, it's a good discussion here. Um, yeah. Ken, did you want to say anything? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, well, actually, I have a one last question. Uh, Dr. Kusten, you mentioned about those wonderful research, university, industry, but but any are there any of this connected to uh, the space to space is designing or NASA leading to anything of their efforts, or they are totally on their own? You mean the. Uh... Those research efforts you mentioned, yeah. Are they anything related to... You know, NASA has a lot of wonderful programs, uh, but they're, they're all like uh, like intern programs and uh, educational resources. But they don't... Part Every once in a while, like in the classes that I've taught, uh, I was able to get NASA, NASA people involved. Uh, just like uh, at the ISU when... Uh, back when Madhu was a student, we had NASA people giving talks, but it, it, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a slingshot thing. They just show up, they're requested, they got a trip, uh, they've got an opportunity to spend a couple of days in a classroom. It's not an organized um, program. Uh, University of Houston at Clear Lake, which is close to Johnson Space Center, they have, they have ongoing classes that take advantage of their proximity so, so they can get stuff like that in. But what we did at Berkeley was completely different. The whole idea of the hypernet paradigm that started at Berkeley back in 1990s was that we, we, we knew this needed to be geographically dispersed. We needed to find partners. We need to have everybody buy into the whole concept of having the students take this over uh, without exams. Uh, we, we, we started close by with Stanford, our first partnership with Stanford then uh, University of Rhode Island, and then Texas A&M. And then we kept on reaching out and, and individual students would, remember the talent pool that I mentioned? So the talent pool that goes into the hypernet paradigm can be recruited from anywhere. And, mm -hmm. and a, good model, a good model that's up there right now and running again is the Epic Challenge. It's called the NASA Epic Challenge. You type that in, uh, or you can get a hold of Charlie Camarda, uh, SDS-114 uh, astronaut, and he'll, he'll He'll fill you in uh, to your ears' content about how to how to do this. Okay, I understand. Uh, Thank you so much. Yeah, this is and, wonderful. Uh, Ken, yeah. um, that's yeah. a good question. I wanted to ask Larry too um, about university involvement, and uh, it's a it's a very important question because many of the things we do are um, are not biased by agency policy decisions and so on. And so it's a welcome addition to the dialogues and discussion that are critical to formulate a, a, a really a viable, and not only economically viable, but um, also um, a viable, a socially viable um, projects that, that somehow <laughs> NASA seems to avoid completely because of the stratified policies they 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 operate on, and so university involvement is let me, critical. Let me cut you off. 
There's only one bureaucracy that I've ever been exposed to that was worse than NASA. It was UC Berkeley. It is UC Berkeley. Now, it's okay. For, and USC is just as bad. It's okay for you to talk about it and for me to talk about it. But the truth is, most of the faculty, this is, the, this is a tenure, tenure type faculty, they are people who have to bring in research money to fund their students. Yeah. If it's a if university, if it's a top tier university, they are they, they have a, a self-interest, which is their own research. And they get a lot of the students to do it. A lot of them don't even have time to teach the classes that they're in. So they get uh, they get part timers like you or me that, that, that are just adjuncts to fill in and they pay us almost nothing you know, 10 grand a year to teach a course that they should be teaching, but don't, right? And, and, uh, and then we have to put up with all of the restrictions and requirements that entails with that kind of position. And then do you think they're gonna listen to somebody come in and say, hey, we need to have a project-based learning program that ties together all these different fields because we wanna solve a problem. The Marsuit project says, let's start with a problem. Let's, but let's cut it into pieces. Let's assign pieces. Let's get all these pieces to use available technology in different departments to come together and not worry about if I'm gonna get a 98 in an exam. Now, let me, let me ask you how easy you're gonna get your department to go for that or even do a demonstration to go for that. Uh, you're talking about- Yeah, I was talking. I was talking more about the product and um, what we do, what we do is publish. And um, uh, the, uh, I'm sure you, uh, UC Berkeley too allows this. Um, we call it um, the um, uh, freedom to express. And uh, you don't see that in many of the documents that come out of uh, the administration, that come out of, um, of the agency, but 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 universities can do that in a in a way. It, I know it's a service more than uh, it's a cheap service, but it's a valuable service. No 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 argument. But the point of it is, we're in the business of education. If you're in the business of education, the idea is to get passion involved with the with the students. Now, there's no better way to get passion from a student than to say, hey. Would you like to work on this great project? Are you interested yeah. in, let me give you an example. You can apply the hypernet paradigm to, to cancer. Now, let me give you an example of how this, how, how you can do this. And I've actually run a, a, a chart and a proposal to do it. So the way it is, you, you say, okay, there are about a half to 1% of all terminal diagnosed cancers, stage three, stage four, that for some mysterious reason, undergo spontaneous remission. These are people who told they wouldn't live more than six months mm -hmm. that are alive today. We've all heard these stories. So let's even say it's a half a percent. It's a small percent, right? If you take the number of terminal cancer diagnosis worldwide a year, a half a percent is a very, very big number. Mm -hmm. We all know that, right? Now you would, you would have thought that somebody would have looked into those spontaneous remissions. Probably not. <laughs> but guess what? They have not. Yeah, they have yeah. not. And there's a reason why they have not. Because the oncologists who treat the patients, 
if the patient leaves and has a spontaneous remission, either either the, the oncologist doesn't have time to track them down and ask them, what did you do? How did, was your lifestyle? How did you move that? And then the other half of the story are the researchers that come up with the protocols. And the researchers that come up with the protocols in the first place, they can't even talk to the patients because of medical uh, privacy regulations. So all of these people fall in a crack. But guess what? They're out there. Yeah. So, so can you take the hypernet paradigm approach? You break, you break cancer into different kinds of cancer. You break it into geography. You have, a, a, you have different student teams from all over the world. They're each assigned first, find those people. It's like you're, you're a private eye. You're James Bond. You're tracking down thousands of people who've had um, spontaneous remission. Yeah. So, so now you get a data point, data set, right? So, so the next part of the, of the problem is you come up with a questionnaire. So you, 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 and, then, and then you get it, you get it sufficiently along where you can turn it over to the medical community looking for commonality, right? Mm-hmm. It's tailor-made for this kind of thing, yeah. right? So pick anything you want. You want to do, do any project you want. It falls into this category, but man, not so easy. Not yeah. so easy to do. We have a mentality that doesn't embrace this so fast. Yeah, but then... But, but, but our communication systems are so good now, Larry, that we can break through a lot of these uh, so-called protocols and communicate. And, uh, and that is very useful. Um, and uh, I think uh, your model and many others, um, you know, I'm thinking of uh, Martine um, Rothblatt, remember when she had that problem with that very rare disease? And she went to the company and asked, asked for the formulation, which she then took upon herself to cure her daughter. You know, it's a very rare disease. Yeah. Guess what? Yeah. Those are the people though. What, 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 what I'm trying to talk about is a system yeah. that embraces, it doesn't embrace memorization. It doesn't embrace grades based on tests. Yeah. It embraces, universities and schools are preparing people for a career. Yeah. In your career, you're given a problem to solve. You harness all of the assets around and your friends and everything else. So how in blazes did we get to an education system that discards all of that? <laughs> it makes zero sense. Yeah, it's not an easy nut to crack. It, it discourages passion, all that stuff. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'm old school or whatever but, you but want. But you, you, you're doing a great job, Larry. We, got, we just got to continue to do that at all <laughs> costs. And thank you so much for a wonderful talk. And this discussion could go on forever, but I'm it out could. of here. Um, okay. Wonderful to see you. And Ken, um, I'm, I'm out of here. Thank you all for attending and uh, enjoy it thoroughly. Uh, bye-bye. 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 Thank you. Wonderful. Bye-bye. Excellent. It was wonderful. Yeah. Ken, uh, before you leave, um, it would be helpful to me if you could give me the time that I actually started talking until the time I got to question. So I know maybe how to edit this for future talks to get it down to a cut 15, 20 minutes out of it or something like that. You don't have to do that now, but if you could let me know, I would really appreciate it. Yeah, I, I have, uh, actually I was tracking that, but I think it's, uh, you started around 10, uh, I think it's probably 12, 10, 12. Uh, to probably 11.25. That's my initial impression. 
because I've been tracking it, but I'll, I'll give you more, more uh, accurate uh, timing. Yeah. So that, that's going to knock about, I'm going I'm to have to knock at least a half an hour. So the other thing you could help me with is uh, maybe give me some ideas where to cut back because it's, it's uh, I've got to get it down to 50 minutes, but just for all the reasons we just talked about, unfortunately. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, but the, the video was long though. The, the one uh, uh, with the video, you play the video on a website. Yeah. Uh, was, yeah, that, yeah. That, that was a little bit long, if that, that, but if it's necessary, that's fine, you know, but there's some, some part, yeah, he's walking around, you know, maybe can kind of, uh, kind of uh, make a trailer out <laughs> of it or something. <clears throat> well, tell me how long each videos were, and I okay. can cut the video out and then put them back in for like two okay. minutes. That's a, that's a great idea. Yeah. Okay, no problem. We'll, we'll, we'll uh, do that very soon. Okay. Thank you so much, Ken. Thanks for all your help and support. Thanks, everybody. No, no problem. Anytime. I welcome anytime, any article, your next talk with us. Uh, highly welcome. Okay, great. Okay. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Thank you. Have Thank a you wonderful for... weekend. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Andrew, by the way, before you leave, Andrew, where do you teach? Well, I teach in uh, California, Nevada, and I have an education uh, company, consulting company. So I work for a municipality.